Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Hi, I just got up. <laughs> uh, we, and this week we have two special guests with us. We have uh, Gone with the Wind expert, Scanlon podcast co-host, and Cinearan writer, Grace Duffy. Cheers. Thank you for that intro. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, film director, Rena McGregor. How's it going? All right, so we are continuing this week our Winter of 39 kind of celebrating the two films on the IMDb's Top 250 from 1939, one of the great years in cinema. Is the other one The Wizard of Oz? The Wizard of Oz, yes, was the other one. Um, Also, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but we did that several years ago as well. So. Frankie Masters and his orchestra present Scatterbrain. Never in our history have we been so united in the knowledge that our cause is just. From far and near come countless visitors. By every mode of travel, every means of transportation, they arrive to view the marvels of the greatest exposition in history. South of the border, down Mexico way. I'm afraid it's impossible to keep off the war for long, even in America, where President Roosevelt addresses the country. But peril fills the late November air. Russia demands Finland's precious islands and vital ports. Finland's ministers frantically attempt to reason with Stalin. Reason fades as threats are backed by armed might. Russia, with its 180 million, tries to frighten the little democracy into submission. Europe as the morning and refreshing as the rain. Isn't it a pity that you're such a scatterbrain? When you smile, it's so delightful. When you talk, it's so insane. For four long years, a succession of actual wars and constant crises have shaken the entire world and have threatened in each case to bring on the gigantic conflict, which is today unhappily a fact. must prepare for action. But who will lead us? Zorro. We are Zorro's fighting legion. Neville Chamberlain was uh, <laughs> Prime Minister of the UK. People were dancing the jitterbug. Glenn Miller was top of the... Um, Everything sorry. was fine. Nothing terrible <laughs> was coming down the line. Wasn't exactly. great for Poland. Actually, Frankie yeah. Masters uh, was top of the charts. Thank you very much for that intro, Andrew. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, yeah, it, it, the, Gone with the Wind, uh, which is the film that we're discussing this week, was released in December 1939. It had a oh. rollout release over the next two years across the United States, gradually spreading, um, and then obviously an international release following the end of the Second World War. It wasn't released in France until after the fall of the Nazi government there. Um, so... It is also, you know, a monumental piece of American cinema. It is adjusted for inflation, the highest grossing film of all time. It is a hugely important cultural impact. It won Best Picture at the 1940 Oscars. And frequently cited on lists, including like the AFI's Best American Films or Best Films of the Century. This is going to be an interesting podcast because I had not watched this until watching it for this podcast. And I get the sense I might not be the only person at the table that is true for it. I also just watched it yesterday. Darren, this is going to be a shock. 
but I only just watched this yesterday. Um, I do remember okay. watching I, I, I think I saw this when I was six or seven for the first time, and I have watched it many times since. Yeah, because that, that's one of the reasons why we are guys, because you, you mentioned that you watch this regularly. This is one of your favourite films, if not your favourite film. It is time. my favourite film of all time. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a Christmas ritual, sort of. So you mm-hmm. watch this every year, which is kind of astounding, because one of the things about Gone with the Wind that kind of scared me, and this is ironic coming from... Of course, from... When, when you don't cook turkey, you have four hours to... <laughs> but this is the thing, we usually put it on on Christmas morning while we're cooking. Ah. So it's playing in the background, and then ah. everything's ready when it's over. Yeah. So it's not a, not, a, not, a, not a completely vegetarian household. No. No. Sorry. <laughs> I love that, that Andrew is like, Much the opposite. Much to my chagrin. Yeah. No. <laughs> the best pitch for making people turn vegetarian is that on Christmas Day, you would have time to watch all of Gone with the Wind instead of cooking <laughs> dinner. Because there is a lot of work in there. Depending in on the a... size of the turkey, it might take longer to cook. Oh, yeah, and that's a big one, so it'd take up to six hours yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Getting up at five o'clock, that used to be a, a ritual indeed. <clears throat> yeah. Nut loaf as well probably takes a little bit of time to do. Yes. Um, not as much as you'd think. There's a lot of That's crap goes means. into nut loaf before you actually put it in the oven. That's it. Yeah, so. yeah. But once it's in the oven, it's kind mm. of... Do you put chestnuts right. on the top? Like oh, a, for seasonal sort of... Yeah, like a, no, like a, put a little like, chestnut, well, apricot kind chestnuts. of... Ooh, Which is, good. yeah, it is nice. Yeah, I think I might do nut loaf this year. Do. It yeah. takes a while to perfect, so give it a few stouts first. Because I find it can be a bit dry, is the only thing. That's the thing, especially if you're using lentils. You yeah. can but find... But trust us, afterwards, you'll go nuts for it. Oh, this is Walter. what Darren adds to a nut loaf recipe. You Fun. can find our nut loaf recipe in, in our, our show, show notes. notes. Um, and this podcast will actually be releasing just in time for Christmas as well. So you will have about three weeks to perfect your nut loaf re- recipe, listeners. Uh, we also recommend watching Gone with the Wind uh, while you're doing that. But no, um, what is it about Gone with the Wind, just, just very briefly, Grace, that kind of makes it your favorite movie without talking about it in more depth, just generally as an introduction? Um, there's a nostalgic element to this because my mum loves it and grew up watching it with her aunts who would have been big movie buffs as well and brought her to loads of films growing up. So this is one of those films that my mum introduced me to when I was still quite young and told me loads of kind of like background about it. And so it just became a thing that we watch every year. But also I just love the story in Gone with the Wind. It's insanely detailed and lengthy and the portrait of life at that time and the themes in it and the grandiose filmmaking that's involved. Like even something like the burning of Atlanta sequence today is still super impressive. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine what it would have seemed like to audiences at the time who weren't used to seeing something on that scale. So it, it, I just think it's, it's a monumental piece of work. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of filming, <laughs> the burning of Atlanta was actually the first scene that was shot in the film. It was actually oh. shot before they had oh. cast. <laughs> Uh, well, it's, uh, the technique used was kind of interesting because what they actually did was they got lots of existing sets, including the sets for King Kong, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. They lined them up, they built facades on them to make them look like the South and then burnt them and had the camera trace them. Oh they also God, used stand-ins cool. for the actors because I think they hadn't yet finalized Vivian Lee um, in the lead role when they were shooting that sequence. So they knew that the character was going to look like, so she had her stunt, they had a stunt double that was kind of, you know, brown-haired, kind of short, looking big oh. like the character wow. from the book. I thought you meant standees. Um, like, oh, well, well that's, that's a different Damn it, story. I got a double chin. Um, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, the, uh, does nobody check these things? Um, well, actually, funny you should mention that. There are scenes in the movie where Selnitz actually used, like, um, mannequins 
and standees and dummies to create a greater sense of scale and majesty. Mm-hmm. Um, for the, perhaps the film's one of the film's most iconic shots, the yeah. one that's most frequently cited, which is that wonderful pan across Atlanta after the siege, where you go with from searching through, searching through the bodies. Yeah, yeah, searching through the bodies to feel the injured. Slow pan up to the Confederate flag. Yeah, which we're probably going to end up talking about quite <laughs> a just, bit, I suspect. It's just yeah. a dummy, so... <laughs> Yeah, but the audience loves him. Yeah. <laughs> but he sells tickets. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about we'll we'll talk about uh, Clark Gable in a little while. Um, but no, so for me, I'd I'd always been kind of wary of of Gone with the Wind just because it was so long. Which is ironic, given I'm a I'm a guy who's like no movie is too long. You know, a, a good movie is never too long. A bad movie is never too short. But it's like four and they still hours. lost huge chunks of the book. I should point out there are children oh, yeah. missing from the film that are in the book. Oh yeah, one of the one of the big arguments that they had over mm-hmm. the film was the length of it and how long it needed to be. Uh, Selznick uh, again, this is, <laughs> this is this is like Gone with the sorry, like The Wizard of Oz last week, which I think Salman Rushdie described as the authorless text, which went through four directors and ten writers. This I think went through at least four directors and fifteen writers, mm-hmm. only one of which is credited on screen. But while The Wizard of Oz is arguably an authorless text, and it's a, in that it's a result of a whole different collection of viewpoints coming together and making a movie, the general argument is the grand unifying theme, or grand unifying force for Gone with the Wind is producer David O. Selnitz, um, who was the daughter of Louis, uh, sorry, the son of Louis Selnitz, um, who got into filmmaking um, from jewellery, actually. And he, his father had always seen filmmaking as something that was crass and vulgar, unlike, say, his stage plays and his books. And he'd always seen filmmaking as something that just returned a, got a return on investment. In contrast, his son David had wanted to see film as an art form. And one of the things that uh, David did was he specialised in literary adaptations. And it's been suggested that one of the reasons for that is his father's love of literature and trying to prove that he could do with film, like adapt these incredible works of art and make them populist and kind of share them. And one of the issues with Gone with the Wind was that Selnitz, one of Selnitz's biggest successes before this was his adaptation of David Copperfield, mm-hmm. which is Charles Dickens' novel, which is actually read in the film itself. Mm. Selnitz's innovation was in looking at the text and deciding that he would adapt the text almost entirely faithfully and trust the characters and the actors to sell what was happening. So when Gone with the Wind came across his desk and when he was finally convinced to buy it, he was initially hesitant, but the studio readers basically said, yes, this is worth doing. He read it when he came back from holidays. It was a best-selling book. But when he decided to do it, he decided he would adopt the same approach and try to be faithful to it. He initially suggested splitting it across two separate films, doing two three-hour films in order to capture everything that was in the novel. Studio, oh, sorry, theater owners uh, rejected that idea. They turned down, they said that there's no way that this would be financially viable. So what you had is this big argument where the initial cut of the film or the initial draft of the film, the script was six hours long and then it had to be gradually whittled down. And there was, this, again, the details of the production arguments over what would be cut. There were arguments about cutting one of the lead character's marriages, for example, to make the film shorter, uh, just for completely removing that character from the story. And a lot of push and pull for it. And as Grace pointed out, there are stuff that's removed. There are kids that are removed. There's entire storylines and subplots that are trimmed from it. Uh, but it is still, generally speaking, a surprisingly faithful adaptation, I believe, having not read the book. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the, the underlying kind of narrative arc is the same. But there are certain, I mean, Scarlett has two other kids in the book. So she has a kid with each of her husbands. And whereas in the film, she only has a, a child with Rhett. And um, there's another character that lives with them when she lives with Melly for a while um, after, like during the reconstruction period, um, who really viscerally does not like Scarlett and is a real foil for her in the book in terms of calling out all of her 
darker, more evil impulses. Um, and that person's not in the film, which is kind of, well, it's not like, it's not a huge thing or whatever, but when you see her being confronted more directly in the book, it is strange then to go back to the film and see that she's largely unchecked in that way. But otherwise, it like the, the actual beginning and end of the story and most of the stuff that happens is there. And it is worth noting, actually, because the book itself was written by Margaret Mitchell, Peggy uh, Mitchell. Um, and she apparently she was married. Her, a lot of it may have been drawn from her own life. She grew up in the South. She famously said that she never realized the South lost the Civil War until she was 10 years old, mm-hmm. when her mother took her on a carriage ride through the remains of plantations on the outside of Atlanta. Um, and basically said, look what the North did to us, mm-hmm. which perhaps shines through a little bit in the text. Maybe a little bit. Um, but what? <laughs> yeah. um, but also she, her first husband was called Red. He was a, um, during Prohibition, he was a bootlegger. Uh, he was apparently abusive, violent, unpredictable. There were allegations or suggestions that he may have beaten her uh, while they were married. She got a divorce. She married a second husband who was apparently much nicer, much more encouraging. After an accident on a horse, uh, which left her ankle sprained, she was basically found herself kind of isolated and unable to like do things that she enjoyed. Are you sure you mean sprained? I'm not. I Sorry, actually, it's not important. Anyway, her, her ankles were out of, uh, uh, <laughs> out of whack, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, their ankles were never the same. Yeah, uh, But basically, yeah, so she, she was wandering around in crutches, but she felt like she was excluded from Atlanta society and stuff like that. She had a lot of time and she started writing. And her husband at the time actively encouraged her writing. She was very nervous about it, refused to show people it. She was very anxious about how it would be perceived, in fact, if people read it. Um, And in fact, when she did sell the film rights to Gone with the Wind, uh, Mitchell made a point to stay out of the film's production largely. She didn't like sign off on stuff. She didn't offer strong opinions. In fact, when she accidentally made a comment about one of the actors who was pushing for the role of Scarlet, she had to issue a correction in the press and say, I was just saying that person was a good actor. I wasn't endorsing them. Because her worry was that, like, if the movie, or well, if the book, first of all, but then if the movie after the book were poorly received in Atlanta, she would have felt shunned by polite society as a result of that. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the way that she wrote the novel... They're smelling salts. <laughs> for fainting, yeah. Just like, <laughs> um, Lady Mitchell has written the most terrible book. Scandalous. Yeah. And um, have you seen the movie? The oh, book my. is very racy, by the way. Oh, yeah. It I is. imagine it is. There are whole yeah. chunks of it where, like, Scarlet's just basically trying not to faint because of Rhett's, like, muscles bulging against her shirt. Wow. <laughs> Seriously. It's, it's oh, fab. There are. It happens to me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's rough. Where you're nearly going to faint. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are like I have I have some sample quotes here. It's been described as fifty or thirties shades of grey. Yeah, that's uh, not fair because it's actually well written. No, okay, it's very well written. We, yeah, <laughs> but um, <laughs> we, we've covered fifty shades of grey. Yeah, which is uh, not well written. But uh, we may go to two fifty after dark while Darren reads some samples from the text. <laughs> yes, <laughs> describing the Tarleton twins as long of bone and hard of muscle. Mitchell has them lounging lazily in chairs. Laughing with their long legs Slower. booted to the knee and thick with saddle muscles, cross negligently. Jesus, that sprained ankle really kind of yeah. takes it out of you. Yeah. Of Scarlet, she writes, her breasts, pushed high by her stays, were very nice breasts. Of red. How well written was this? Sorry, that particular line. Of red, something vital. Electric, leaped from him to her at the touch of his warm mouth. 
something that caressed her whole body thrillingly. And there's more, you know, yeah, that's, and so on and so forth. But yes, apparently it was a very racy read. Our Patreon. Supporters. Darren reads the entirety the of Gone yeah. with the Wind is kind of hidden behind the paywall, if you can find it. Um, but yeah, it was, and it was, what's interesting is that Gone with the Wind, the book, is tremendously popular. It's America's second favorite book. Can we guess what America's favorite book is? It's either Bible. Fifty Shades yeah. or the Bible. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's the not Bible. Fifty Shades? I thought the no. Fifty Shades was like more best-selling than the Bible. But I think you have to admit that that's the thing. It was, like, it was a poll asking people their favorite book. The Bible has a head start in Fifty Shades. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got to build that fan. It's got a much more well, rabid fan A lot as well. of people yeah. will say that their favorite book is the Bible. Like Donald yeah. Trump oh. says his favorite book is the Bible. I've read all of it. I've, all of it. I've read it like a ton of times. <laughs> yeah, which is Not your favorite testament. One favorite part. Um, you know, it's things Just you say don't the New Testament. <laughs> say that's your favorite book. But anyone who knows anything about the Bible, like who lives in America would say, um, oh, if I had to choose New Testament, yeah. <laughs> uh, some things you don't pick up until your second or third read through. It's very simple text. Um, but like, yeah, so it's, and it's kind of interesting that Gone with the Wind kind of, you, first of all, it unifies all people politically. So it's the second favorite book of Democrats, Republicans, and oh, of Independents. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. It gets more complicated mm. when you divide it along racial, geographic, and sex lines. No kidding. Yeah, <laughs> as you might expect. So for whites and Hispanics, Gone with the Wind is their second favorite book. Wow. I love that for African Americans, their second favorite book is Dan Brown's Angels and Demons, uh, which is a very interesting one. Dan In Brown's our, Angels and Demons. Would not have seen that coming. Yeah, not not the Da Vinci Code. Not, not the Da Vinci. Uh, yeah, sorry. sorry. Um, but yeah, and and then among uh, it's the most popular book in the Midwest and the South. Um, the Stand is the favorite book in the East, and Lord Stephen of the Rings. King's the Stand? Stephen King's The Stand, and in the West, it is Lord of the Rings. Uh, for women, Gone with the Wind is a strong second favorite book, and for men, it's just Lord of the Rings, which is is interesting as well. Because one of the arguments that's been made about Gone with the Wind is that it is, and this is kind of interesting in the context of talking about the two hundred and fifty, because we talked about the two hundred and fifty as a sort of as a list that is largely dominated by a certain point of view, and that point yeah. of view is typically men in their 30s you know things like fight club being the you know number 10 film the dark knight being number four you know that sort of stuff goodfellas in the top 20 all that sort of stuff right uh the interesting thing about gone with the wind is that it was seen at the time and is still seen as a book that is strongly that means a lot to women uh in particular it has a very strong kind of women fan base and there's a lot of discussions molly haskell in fact Mm -hmm. wrote a book about it i think in 2009 where she argued that like it is one of the formative feminist texts in like American pop history, so to speak, largely through its characterization of Scarlet. I think that's why I was looking at it yesterday, like because I hadn't seen it before. So I think in ways it muddied my potential nostalgia of having watched it loads when I was a kid to 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 form an attachment on it in my first viewing yesterday. So I was looking at it through the filter of a lot of race, sexism, uh, historical relevance, which kind of then places the film in a very 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 murky water all around because I think probably in the context of the 30s Vivian Lee plays this incredibly complex anti-heroine who is really dark-minded who is very selfish and um, her own worst enemy and I think it's a fascinating characterization not exactly the most likable female character but then in, in the context of when it was written in history you have someone who is flawed and not just the beautiful southern belle who needs to be saved she ha- gets her own back 
backbone throughout the war. And, you know, I think that in that context, it is a really <coughs> feminist, uh, um, revelatory role for that time. Having said that, there, then the last portion of the film becomes quite, Whoa! We're talking a little bit about that kind of when we get into into the spoilers and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. It's also, this, before you know, the one spoiler we can give away is there was a war. You know. I mean, war. yeah. Well, was there? Was there really? Yeah. Was there really a war, or was it an invasion? Oh, it was a lost cause. Apparently, yeah. the War of Northern Aggression. Yeah. Is that what it's called? <laughs> I believe that's the technical Them name. Dirty Yankees. Um, but no, but I mean, I mean, people like Margaret, ha- as people like sorry, um, Molly Haskell have talked about like. At the time, even when it was released in the 30s, like women would be told not to read it because it was so racy. And you have the, no, but you have this tradition of like, you know, Haskell's talked about this being a teenager yeah. and reading and it. And also beneath- uppity though. <laughs> um, and I, like, they, but it's a funny thing. If, 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 like, if it's 2019 and we're kind of um, uh, talking about the movie, it's difficult to talk about yeah. her kind of. Um, uh, uh, feminism now or, or um, without kind of um, thinking in terms of kind of the intersections oh yeah yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I mean yeah the, one of the big things is the question of how you navigate like I think uh, Ryan uh, Valencia and I apologize for messing up that name at the AV club has argued that that's the, the push and pull that exists mm-hmm. with Gone with the Wind because he would argue that like Scarlet uh, is still even by the standards of modern heroes She's allowed to be unlikable in a way that women in fiction are exactly, still, yeah. still rarely allowed to be unlikable. Like, I mean, the, again, you point to 350, any movies like, say, Fight Club, for example, mm-hmm. uh, where you're allowed to have these unlikable men who are kind of central figures, Wolf of Wall Street and stuff like that, yeah. who are unlikable. Uh, but, like, you very rarely get that with women. And Scarlet is, you know, not to be too spoilery or too judgmental. Mm-hmm. I think she's unlikable and abrasive, but I think she's meant to be. I think that's one of the things that makes the text so into or the film exactly, so interesting. Yeah. And the uh, fact you can still stay with her and her performance for four hours and yeah. still be compelled by her whole presence and despite yourself empathize with what she's doing, even if the baseline for all of her desires is something quite frivolous and meaningless. And, it's and just, anchored in some stuff that is very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> those <laughs> damn and northern invaders. Damn Yankees. But, yeah. but great. Yes. Um, like how how does that sort of um as someone who kind of would have come to this quite early kind of had how 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 does that sort of you know AV club um discussion kind of um uh like do you find yourself running up against that or do do not really I think like. I've always loved Scarlett. Like, I know you're not supposed to like her, but I love her. I really mm. love her. I think and I'm in that camp too. Like, it's it's really hard not to because she's so headstrong. And I think, especially for someone of her gender and of her era, for her to be so completely unapologetically calculating and strategic and use all of the means at her disposal mm-hmm. to navigate that system is really, really compelling. So, like, what I've always found funny is the amount of people who, when you talk about Gone with the Wind, will talk about how much they hate her and how they think she's terrible. And I'm like, that's kind of the point, you yeah. idiots. Like, I don't know what you're trying to say. Like, she's not supposed to be likable. That is a revelatory thing for a female character to be that unlikable and still be someone that you actively root for. But she's also someone that you kind of just want to smack a lot because she's such an idiot in some ways and really upsetting idiot. Um, but yeah, no, that's never been an issue for me. 
because it's like watching it as a grown-up with a greater understanding of like the historical context and stuff is difficult because I remember reading some books about this like specifically about Gone with the Wind when I was in college and people talking about you know why why people are drawn to Scarlet and especially say southern women because you know she as a character and the story represents the the ideal that they're told in the south shall we say about the exactly, war yeah. like it's very much a fantastical portrait of what they believe it was actually like so and that's part of the reason that say people from that background would relate to her but i think you know if you're looking at it from a different perspective and it's not something that you know you're actively nostalgic for that time or anything like that there are still elements of scarlet that stand out so much that you know you just don't see that often if ever even in this day and age and, so. the, and i think as well like giving to <coughs> like not uh, like indicating any spoilers but it's the the it was quite progressive to have a female characters that was very you know, when you look, you stand back and you look at the two main female characters, her and Nellie, compared to the male characters, they're, and even though Scarlett is very much controlled by her emotions and she wants very particular things, for her building a legacy, never being hungry again, you know, the mill and all this stuff, like, and all of these men around her are kind of just complaining about, like, they're ta- you're, you're being taken away from your family and, you know, you're you're not paying attention to things, and, like, womanly mm-hmm. things, and they're all talking about you. And, you know, like, she's, she's against so much adversary for, for building everything that she loses during the war, which is a great story. I mean, despite the, the historical context of what the war was and everything, it's just... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still think that's pretty cool. Well, it's, it's worth noting the film is hugely popular internationally. Um, in fact, actually, one it's been argued that one of the things about it that makes it so popular, and again, this is the thing where you have the con- the context of what the film actually is, and the context of what the civil war actually was, versus what the film thinks the war is and what the film thinks it was. But like, it's been argued that one of the things about the film that's made it so successful internationally, it is a huge. It's a bestseller in North Korea. Um, it was apparently smuggled into Ethiopia and became a bestseller as well. Um, it was um, after the Nazis retreated from France, French flocked to Gone with the Wind and kind of adored it. And it's been argued that it's kind of this universal theme of of kind of what Renuk was suggesting there. It's you have lost everything in this mm-hmm. horrific, brutal conflict. You've had everything taken away from you and stripped from you. And you have this almost kind of like, you know, optimistic, you know, social Darwinian to a certain extent idea that's articulated by, um, is it Ashley? Where he says that, um, he says that you know, in these situations, the smart and the strong will survive. They're the ones who will pull through. They'll find a way to the rest rebuild. Will be winnowed. Yeah, will be winnowed, which is kind of a more bleak philosophy. Um, but the film, nobody, nobody wants to believe that they're weak or meek or whatever. Everybody wants to believe that they're strong mm-hmm. and they're special and they're resourceful. And there's I, something I, like that isn't a point of the movie yeah. because he immediately told, well, "We're we're being winnowed." Like we're supposed to be the 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 he is strong he, he's he's very explicitly well, she is as well like the, but the, but the, she the, is resourceful and strong and resilient she's able yeah, to rebuild but it's not to. it's not the, like it's not like her 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 point is that um like just kind of having faith in the um kind of strength of our um of our character or of our history or of our line isn't going to um get us out of this like we don't we 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 haven't just been gifted the uh preternatural um resources there there is there isn't a destiny 
um uh, for us that 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 we are being destroyed kind of and if 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 there was something destined for us it is no longer and that we have to 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 do something but and again not to get too spoiler about the whole point of the film like the you know the famous one of the famous closing line of the film you know everybody knows but it's the actual closing line of the film suggests yeah. that like sure you can lose absolutely everything that is important to you or that you believe is important to you that is fundamental to who you are again and again and again, again and again and again repeatedly but you will there is always a chance for you if you are strong enough and smart enough and resilient enough to get it back and i think i, I think there's something in that i think that's maybe why the film resonates at least one of the reasons why the film was sort of resonated, particularly in the context of, you know, 1939 to 1945. And land, and land being this, you know... The, the only thing worth, the only thing worth fighting for. <laughs> the red soil of Tara. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay, so I think we're, we're about sort of done on our time preliminary stuff. So three questions before we jump into the spoiler zone. Um, and we'll start with Rena with the three questions. Uh, having just watched it, absolutely mm-hmm. no pressure. Do you think... That Gone with the Wind belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies of all time. Despite my own perspective on watching it through a very uh, 2019 sociopolitical conscience and having strong objections to it. Yes, it does. It's a technically beautiful movie. It's... Uh, it it belongs purely for the spectacle and the size of each frame and the color and um the raw emotion and it being it kind of starting the trend the trend of these big epics that were built on otherwise melodramatic kind of stories and uh and and through which it just there's been countless other films that have kind of uh peppered throughout the last century that kind of stand up next to it absolutely. Uh, and Grace? Yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> just, just a yes. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, no, I, I, I would. I, I was struck watching the movie um, how beautiful it was at, at, at times, just completely mesmerizing. And I think the performances as well mm-hmm. are tremendous. I hear Vivian Lee is incredible. Clark Gable is just so... Um, charismatic, such a uh, mm. rascal, like one one of uh, <laughs> cinema's best. Um, um, so Olivia de Havilland, who is still alive, as yes. Well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and and the subject of her feud with Betty Davis was recently Ryan Murphy's feud, I believe, was it? Um, and she objected to it as one of the parties who is rare parties who is still alive. She yeah. objected to the treatment of her in that show, which is kind of amazing as That's well. Brilliant. Uh, even at the age of uh, one hundred and six, I think she is. Is it? No, she's one hundred and three. One hundred and three. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, for myself, I'm kind of agnostic on this. I think on the one hand, yes, it is. It is absolutely one of the most beautiful films ever made. I also think, as I mentioned earlier, like things with the list and what the list kind of could do with more of, which is, you know, stories about women uh, written by women and stuff like that. But also even just the theme of kind of it's it's a melodrama. It's a glorious melodrama and it's wonderful in that sense. And it's absolutely beautiful. And I think the list could do with more of those kinds of films, particularly older kind of films as well. I'm a bit more ambivalent about its legacy, I think, than than other people at this table. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, and when you look at the list and you look at, like, movies that are on the list, things like The General, uh, to pick another obvious example, I wonder if, you know... If you're looking at something that's not in the movie. You in know, this in, movie in, or in The General? In, 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 um, in either. Like, like the, the, as in... I think the, it is in this movie. 
No, but the legacy of 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 the movie isn't isn't part of the movie itself, is it? I don't. Know. I think when you're getting to something that is as big as this, as kind of monolithic as this is, so I think that's you know as large a mark on popular culture. Like we we we've seen kind of the uh, Fight Club uh, last summer yeah. and stuff like the the Matrix and yeah. things that invite all sorts of. Yeah. Kind of, now 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 this isn't a movie that invites. All sorts. No, that, that, that's it thing. invites a very particular yes. um, quite, quite legacy. Right, yeah. Yeah. Like, but I, do I, we do we blame a movie for 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 its legacy? And and I, like I like don't the, think it's its legacy. It's very it's very much of its time. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you can't deny the huge cultural impact it has had on, if anything, the genre of the Academy Award winning yes, best movie. film yeah. archetype, which is. You know, all the way down to Cold Mountain and Titanic, and you know the big, the, the big spectacle of the year that is lining up the Oscars from the minute it hits yeah. the screen. So it's, it's, it's that its scale, the audience attraction it's going to bring, the, the, the big Oscar-winning blockbuster that's not a western or a something else. You know, yeah. it's that it, you can't deny it. How, however, its legacy is very, yeah. very, 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 very. Uh, checkered. <laughs> yeah. No. No. But that that that's the thing about it. Again, that's why I'm not I'm not a hard no. I'm not saying it shouldn't be there or anything like that. I'm just I am ambivalent. I think that there's a reason why it's there. I think there's a reason why it deserves to be there. I also think there's a reason why I would be rightfully wary of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that reason is different from the reason from say Fight Club or The Matrix, where that stuff is imposed from outside the text. Like there's there's no moment in the film where anybody you know without getting too spoilery says you know gee. Maybe we were wrong to keep slaves, and maybe maybe this that's the problem, not the fact the war happened. Maybe if we hadn't kept slaves, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we wouldn't be in the situation. It's never nobody in the film says that. Because the slaves uh, are really happy. So slaves are yeah, generally yeah. happy, and we treat them well. Yeah, except uh, for that one overseer. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's okay because he's lower class and white trash. Um, yeah, we're gonna maybe talk about some of that stuff. But I mean, I think. It's not that that stuff is being read in. Because, I mean, even in Fight Club, you have the narrator referring to people who buy into the philosophy no, of I, I, mean, I mean more in the sense of kind of is, is a film responsible for, 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 for its <coughs> legacy. Kind of if somebody wants to look at a movie from 1939 and say, you see, <laughs> um, where like if, if, if you feel that uh, thing, things have moved on from 1939 but in ways that are um like the, the, this though assumes that like people weren't looking at it in 1939 and going this is a little bit retrograde and there were the the NACP the NAACP mm-hmm. for example was very vocal in its concerns in 1939 right making so. the film, and quite yeah. rightly so um, it's not as if this stuff has been imposed from the outside on now to be fair to Selnitz sorry uh, I sound like I'm I'm kind of defending the views of the movie no, no I, I understand I'm, i understand I'm entirely not, and I'm, yeah. I'm wa- like i am normally wary of being like the person who's like blame a movie for its fans right and i'm not i don't or think for, i'm doing or, that here yeah or for the time it's in there's yeah. a kind of a tendency to be like well if i was there at the cross i would have gotten up yeah, and yeah, pulled no, the I, nails out and, as opposed to just yeah. being somebody in 1939 who watched a movie that is you know reflective of a large swathe of public opinion in 1939 yeah. And I, I get that, and I, I'm aware of that, and that's why I'm not. I'm not arguing a hard no. I'm not no, like no, no. I'm not. You know, I'm You're, not insisting that the cross be put yeah. up. I'm, I'm ambivalent. I, you know, I'm glad to see it there for reasons I outlined. I'm also a bit wary of it being there because I'm, you know, 
because of reasons that I think we'll talk about in the spoilers and we kind yeah, of alluded yeah. to already. Uh, but I, I don't think that they're in any way ambiguous in the film. I don't think there's stuff that I'm bringing to the film. I don't think there's stuff that like critics of the film are bringing exactly, to the film. Yeah. I think that they're there. Yeah. Woven yeah. into the fabric and inseparable from it. And the ideology as a whole of the film is is, is what you're talking about yeah. as well. Like the, what the film is, um, the romance it's selling as a whole. Yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry, that, that was a very heavy, heavy discussion. <laughs> um, second question. Um, would it be on your own personal 250, Rina? No. And Grace? Yes. Would it actually... This is your favourite movie ever, so this would be number yes. one. Cool. Uh, and Andrew? Um, possibly not. But I, like, I do, I, I do want to watch this movie again. Um, With a nut roast. With a nut roast, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. With our special chestnut and apricot. And, um, you realize uh, we're going roast. to have to repair a recipe for that in the show notes, right? I, you can manage that, Darren. That's fine. <laughs> Thank um, you. I made I the fair share to Grace or Renock. Oh, yeah. Or if you guys like rust, nut roast. I got a good like... recipe I can, on Pinterest. Cool. Excellent. Yeah, what, what, I, what I put in. There's reasons why I might put it in. Um, like, I, 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 I think I've said already... Um, uh, Vivian and Clark. <laughs> um, Viv and C. Viv and yeah, V and C. Um, C and V. Um, but, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Part, uh, yeah, I, w- I would have it on the two fifty. I'm not sure if I'd have it on mine. Mm-hmm. And probably the the same for me. Um, and then finally, uh, one that's kind of um, when we get to the end of this. If people have not already watched Gone with the Wind, if people haven't seen it yet, and again, three of us at the table hadn't seen it before last night, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, go out, watch the movie, and, and come back and listen to the second half? Rina? Um, maybe. I mean, I suppose it depends. That I, I wouldn't be, I, it wasn't something I was jumping to be like, you need to see this the way it was about the apartment. You know, yeah. it, it's... It is something that if it's on the telly at Christmas time, I'd say, yeah, no, give it a shot. It's, it's, a, it's a great four hours to spend, but it wouldn't be something I'd be like, you need to see it. Uh, and Grace? Yes. And Andrew? Yeah, I, 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 I'd, give it a, I'd give it a almost unqualified yes. Yeah. Um, I would say um, it's long, but don't be... <laughs> Break it up. Break said, it up over. Uh, yeah, yeah. Said the the vicar. Uh, sorry. The, the, um, the, uh, but don't be put off. Um, uh, yeah. I, I'd agree Probably. with that. And I think it's it's one of those films that you could split over two nights as well if you are that way sort of inclined. It's got an interval. It's got a natural break. It has a natural yeah. break. It has a cliffhanger in the middle of it, basically. Exactly. Um, yeah. We had breaks. We, we did have breaks. We um, went to go for a walk and realized it was raining. <laughs> and that was the highlight of our evening. Um, but no, we, had I, to I, take, we had to go under a little bridge. Yeah. Our horse. And just yeah. wait for people to pass overhead. Uh, I would also give it an unequivocal. Yes, actually. It is a stunningly beautiful film uh, and very, very worth seeing and immersive. And like, I think the length adds to that. It very much kind of takes you into its world. Yeah. Anyway. There, there, there is an argument for certain kinds of movies being long. Like the the um I think when when Robert Evans was producing The Godfather, they mm. they took a um a cut of the movie to him, and he's like, "What is this? Ask for an epic. <laughs> you need to make this longer. Like like the, 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 you're 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 making an epic movie here. Like put in that subplot yeah. about Sonny. Um. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 him being like a a 
um, what was it? Exceptionally long. Yes. Um, like Gone like like, with the Wind. Like the, yeah. yeah. I want the movie to be exceptionally long like Sonny. Um, um, <laughs> all right, then. We don't think, I don't thank you for, for raising the tone. I don't think we're going to... I feel like you brought that up, Karen. <laughs> I, I don't think we're going to top that, so we're going to segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So Grace, what is Gone with the Wind about for you? Um, well, what isn't it about really? There's something in here for everybody, I think. Um, this to me is a fascinating story about um, independence and courage and strength and hope fundamentally and having somehow finding the wherewithal within yourself to transcend things that have happened to you in your life. Mm. And on top of all that, it's also a really fascinating <clears throat> portrait of an, an imaginary moment in time um, of a people and a place and a situation and a historical context that's very heavily weighted one way, but it's a fascinating evocation of the way people of that persuasion see themselves and see that era in history and who they characterize as the bad guys, which is very interesting. I think you mean the invaders. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Because the thing that always strikes me about Gone with the Wind is how benevolent it is in its racism. Like the villains in all the piece are, are the Yankees, like who are all white. You know, they don't look at black people and actively say like you are lower than dirt or anything mm-hmm. like that. You know, they just don't see them as being fully formed human beings capable of being looked at in that way. So like, you know, the O'Hara family love, in inverted commas, their slaves and treat them really well and very much see them as part of their family. Whereas someone like the white trash Yankee, who used to be the foreman, Jonas, and all that, um, they would see as lower than that. And they would see the Yankees as being equivalent to that, which mm-hmm. I've always found very interesting because they it's, you know, when most people, I suppose, think of racism, they probably think of the more overt, like Ku Klux Klan, burning crosses, lynching, the really Using violent. Using the N-word and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. Um, whereas in Gone with the Wind, it's very much just like, oh no, these are just like, you know, poor helpless creatures that we're taking care of. And how dare you come in here, white Northerners, and tell us <laughs> not to do that sort of thing. So um, I've always, like... Especially when I watch it now as an adult, I do find that very striking that there's never a moment where, you know, like, and this, this comes across a lot more in the book, actually, um, that attitude that, you know, slaves who would want to be free are seen as kind of uppity and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, unruly and and unruly, exactly. Whereas in the film, it's very much just like, oh no, that like, we're just protecting them. We're taking care of them. And like, how dare you? Yeah. Yeah. Like they're happy, obviously. Big Sam, like as he's wandering through burning Atlantis, like I'm going to dig a trench that's going to help us defeat them Yankees. But also like later on when Scarlet is attacked, Big Sam rescues her. And then there's the part where she gives Pork her dad's watch. And I mean, Mammy is very much like her best friend. So... Yeah. But we um, also see these kind of shots of these vulgar nouveau riche uh, mm-hmm. kind of um, African Americans after the yeah yeah, yeah. and oh, you know what's fascinating about friends. that like, yeah. is that it's Mammy who comes up and starts like shoving them out of the way yeah. Yeah. like yeah. she's the one who takes issue with them rather than Scarlet yeah. yeah which is again a fascinating way of looking at it because I think you know and I've read I can't remember the name of the author I'm gonna have to Google this but there's a book called Scarlet's Women which is about people who are well, it was a study of like how women engage with Gone with the Wind and why people love it and yeah. stuff. And um, 
that was one of the things that emerged from it really strongly was that people would look at that era of um yes helen taylor um it's really good there's like there's a lot of really interesting research in there and questionnaires and stuff like that but it's it's in stuff like that where you know you have very different responses from people of different backgrounds but women from the south and women from a southern especially a moneyed southern background Mm -hmm. um very much have scarlet's perspective where it's almost like you know oh but why would they want that you know this is Mm -hmm. everything was so good for them and they were so well taken care of and i just don't understand and you know then when you have moments in the book where it's like the the black slaves are the ones you know, taking issue with the other black people who want to be free. It's um, it's interesting that they kind of, they forge that perspective to them instead of to the, you know, colonial yeah. overlords. Well, well, it's one of the big differences <coughs> between the, the book and the film. And Selnitz was actually surprisingly, um, like, again, he, he was open to that. He understood the context was different and he was more mm-hmm. wary of that. I think he also understood that he was selling as much to a northern and kind of western audience yeah. as he was to kind of the romantic southern um, I'm very uncomfortable reading excerpts from, from the book, um, but there are like descriptions of characters. So when Scarlet's reunited with Big Sam after the war, his watermelon pink tongue lapped out, his whole body wiggled, and his joyous contortions were as ludicrous as the gambolings of a mastiff, for example. No, the, the um, ones that stay with me are, are paragraphs where they're just like, you know, oh, these are people euphemism um who are like two generations out of the jungle and they think that they can live independently like yeah. that that kind of thing where you're just like hmm, really? yeah at one so moment when, that's not in the film at the very oh, least yeah. when looking over the plantation after the war um she remembers seeing one of the um one of the slaves looking sad with an uncomprehending sadness of a monkey's face uh, yeah. which is oh, terrifying course. Um, it's right like, up there with H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, that's the gasp, right? Like, that sounds horrifying to us today, but those yeah. kind of descriptions were de rigueur well, at the and time. The, the, how uh, Ashley refers to the darkies. Like, the, yeah. the, the, even the in the film. And yeah. even, like, yeah. the father talks about that. Ashley you know. makes that, like, a principal stand where he's like, we should use free darkies <laughs> yeah. instead of slave labor. And you're just, just like, like, that's the right <laughs> You're a champion. You're guess, a liberal. I guess yeah. one of them were sort of paying a bit more. And they're yeah. not being whipped anymore because we're not allowed to. It's, that. it's, it's a it's, it's awful to to make starved men go to work. We should be getting the yeah. slaves. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's what I find like the racial dynamics of this are so fascinating, and especially in like a modern American context where like you know poor white people are treated so disgustingly. Oh, <laughs> in this just, film, yeah. Like, but like also there's that attitude in real life of like you know you're somehow lower than dirt, like you're lower than even the yeah. black people. Yeah. You know. Well, that was Martin Luther King's argument was that like one of the reasons why he felt that racism was such a core <laughs> part of American culture was that yeah. it meant that even the lowest class white person yeah. can look down on somebody. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just fascinating. I, I I did I did find it. Um, this week, I'd also um, inadvertently also watched uh, Get Out with my uh, my partner. He hadn't seen it before. And for some reason, we thought, oh, it would be great crack to watch 12 Years uh, a Slave awesome. as well. Wow. <laughs> and there's actually found a cut online of um, someone had cut together all the, the, the pieces in Gone with the Wind of, of all of the black characters and how they were represented and spliced in horrible moments from 12 years a slave that were sort of the equivalent yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. um which was just which was really incredibly polarizing and interesting to watch um but yeah one of the things that i found uh going into a big google rabbit hole was um the actress hattie mcdaniel who was the first black 
person, person to ever win an Oscar. Win an Oscar. Um, and wasn't and, allowed to sit with the white people. And yeah. didn't even get an Oscar, I believe. She got a plaque and that went missing. And the IRS uh, targeted her for... Um, she wasn't even invited to the Atlanta premiere, for example, mm-hmm. when they're printing leaflets of the Atlant- for the Atlanta premiere. And by the way, to give a sense of how controlling David O. Selnitz was, like he was sending memos to the Atlanta, people organizing the Atlanta premiere, telling them what paper stock to use for the programs because he didn't want rustling during the film. But on that, they, fe- they featured pictures of the actors yeah. uh, separate. But Hattie McDonald was basically, she was shown in character because it felt like showing an African-American actor yeah. on a same page as White House yeah, would be insulting to audiences in, in the South. And of course, she was targeted by the NAACP for being someone who was uh, contributing to the uh, oppression of black people. Um, and I think it was it was Monique had referenced her in her um Speech. Catch her speech for her Precious, precious um, by, by thanking her for everything that she had to do so that other people could get roles. Yeah. And even well, looking at the statistics as well, there's only 36 uh, African-American or, or black um, recipients of Oscars ever in its yeah. 3,000 plus awards. Which is insane. Um, it, it's worth noting as well that when McDaniel was discussing her role, she repeatedly argued that she'd rather play a maid for $700 a week than be one for $7. $7. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's also worth noting that even on production of the film, and to like, we know we, we might talk a bit about Clark Gable later on. To be fair to the we game, might. We, we, we might indeed. <laughs> we will. Fra- frankly, Andrew, I don't give a damn. Um, but to be fair to Gable, apparently on the set, he was very adamant in standing up for the black performance yeah. of black workers on there um he almost he almost refused to attend the premiere because mm-hmm. mcdaniel wasn't invited which is a credit to him as well um he, during production he discovered that there were segregated toilets on the set oh, and he refused because he's english like he's coming he's to not this english he's american clark cable clark cable's american is he very much so from ohio oh vivian lee is english Yes, Vivian Lee oh, is definitely. They were both English. Oh, I'm, so English, I'm, she's from British India. He, I think I thought Gable was the only one of the four who was yeah. American, if I remember correctly. The only one in the title four, right? No, Olivia de Havilland is American, but her, she was born in Tokyo. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. playing Ashley definitely is. Leslie, <laughs> Leslie Howard is American too. To the, oh, I or, think he's, he's or maybe he's English. Oh, oh yeah. Very Double very check that. But Vivian, no, Vivian Gable Lee was American. born in, in Bengal. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but Clark Gable definitely is not English. Sorry. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Um, but yeah, and I don't and know like, why I thought that. There was the whole kind of, and there was apparently like big push and pull on set. Like they'd have, uh, Hattie McDaniel would entertain the cast and crew by sort of limp stepping her way through old folks at home. And Butterfly McQueen, who plays uh, Prissy. Um, yeah. yeah. She was apparently uncomfortable with the role and the way in which it was portrayed, but she was repeatedly advised to never tell anybody how uncomfortable she was. Um, Apparently, while watching McQueen play the role, Margaret Mitchell had officially no involvement with the film, but she had somebody who I think was working in costuming, uh, Susan Merrick, Mm -hmm. uh, who was on set passing notes and letting her know how the production was going. And she, Merrick's comment on watching McQueen perform was that she was an N-word through and through. Um, as praise for the performance, mm-hmm. uh, which is yeah, it, it, her performance is so uncomfortable to watch. Just very, yeah. it's the tone in which the, all of the 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 African American characters are portrayed. There's a degree of humor, like uh, running after chickens, and and just even the mammy archetype is yeah. uh, something Hattie McDaniel had played as well for in other films before. Uh, it's kind of it's the archetypes in which we're the audience were comfortable uh perceiving black characters in a, in a way that 
affected their entire their 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 entire personality and uh, find each character incredibly uncomfortable to watch because it's how the other white characters appear in the same frame they're usually better than them usually telling them or encouraging them like when scarlet gets a bit of backbone she's the one that's kind of um pulling Percy together and yeah. things like that and slapping her and it's just oh, it's yeah. just really yeah. hard to watch and the, like just because they don't say the n-word in this movie doesn't yeah. mean they don't say the n-word in this movie like over and over again like every time they say kind of darky Euphemism, yeah. and, and yeah. They, there is a scene there where, he, where he's like oh I'm a house worker yeah mm-hmm. and you're like where, worker wasn't the word that you would have used in that context yeah yeah um, and, and that's the thing is that like there was a big fight and push and pull about it to be fair to, to Selznick he made several changes that he did downplay some of the stuff so for example when Scarlet was assaulted at the shantytown um, yeah. in the book she was assaulted by black people and rescued by the Ku Klux Klan in the film She's Whoa. assaulted but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so a bit of an epiphany there for Andrew. But she was uh, she was assaulted in the film, obviously, by white poor white people and saved by Big Dumb. Or well, Big it, was, Sam, it was both, wasn't it? There was a black man and a white. Yeah, as well. Um, see, coming together. This is the post-reconstruction South. Um, but yeah, there is, and there's a sense of kind of toning that down as well. There was a big argument about whether or not they could use the N-word. Um, certain people involved in the film wanted to use the N-word and other people didn't. And it was decided that to get it past the Hayes Code, uh, they would not actually use it. Which is interesting. across. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it very much does. What's interesting is that 75 years after, and it's funny you should mention 12 Years of Slavery, mm-hmm. now, 75 years after Gone with the Wind, um, the Oscars decided that they'd do a retrospective celebrating 1939. <laughs> where the Best Picture winner was Gone with the Wind. And one of the Best Picture nominees that year was 12 Years a Slave, an eventual winner. Yeah. Uh, one of the points of minor controversy was that they decided the film they wanted to celebrate from 1939 was The Wizard of Oz, um, which is very interesting. <laughs> strategic. Very, very strategic. Um, but in, in terms of that, is there, there anything else you want to talk about with regards to that? Or do you want to move on to kind of talking about... Scarlet um, and, and kind of characterization, or do you want to even just talk about the South in general, maybe, and then? I mean, I, the the one thing that I find fascinating about the film is I think it's you know I'm I'm fascinated by what ideologies, um, are intentionally or unintentionally put through in films. Like in Titanic, you could argue there is a very um, Hollywood Marxism to the whole stru- uh, structure. And I remember Zizek was, Slavoj Zizek talked a little bit about the disappearing medium of uh, the poor person that comes into a middle class person's life, fulfills yeah. their sense of self esteem, and dies. Yeah. And that's a trope that you see a lot. So there, there's the unintentional value systems behind all of the these big films we love and we can't escape it i think it's so much more clear and intentional in gone with the wind from the first text that comes on on yes. the screen and mm. you're like oh right this is like when it's there was a land of, of master yeah. and slave remember and when the world was perfect. remember we when were... this magical place ex- existed not us <laughs> but the south and how amazing that you know and i think you get you get swept up in the ideology because that's what's great about the cinema of yeah. it is you see the sweeping shots of landscapes and you're like yes no tara and beautiful like, and and self-fulfillment yes what's striking about the opening credit scene and I, I when i was watching yesterday was that it's it's landscape so you mm. have like the the windmill and the watermill and stuff like that you have the fields and the plantations and, and 
but you have like you don't have any of the main characters but as far as the film's concerned the slaves are just part of the landscape yeah. so you have the cotton field and you have people picking it but it's not interest it's just like they're there because well that's how the south was really you know and they told themselves when it was uh knocking off time it wasn't yeah. uh being beaten for leaving the field early kind yeah. of thing and, and this is what the uh the the supercutter was watching yesterday was like uh it was comparing these uh, these black characters that had saying, a I get to say when it's quitting time, say when it's quitting versus, time. Versus, well, here's the versus word. being yeah. absolutely beaten to yeah. to death, and uh, Lupita Nyong'o being raped in her in in the bed at night. So you know, it was just it was it's it is fascinating how a film can frame an ideology around a certain characterization of of people's experience in the South and allow us to absorb it through a really great story about personal self-fulfillment and regrowth and rebuilding um i don't think any other film really encapsulates that perfectly as as much as this one one. and i i think as well if if it has if it has values in turn in 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 a kind of a, a if it has a value um in a political sense it's in challenging the kind of northern um um idea of progress because they they they, mm-hmm. they put in um the carpet bags, scene yeah, yeah <laughs> with with the um and with them explaining you're going to get uh f- uh uh, uh f- 40 acres in a mule yeah which was the because fa- you are friends and friends yeah. vote for friends but that election. that was that was the famous kind of promise given yeah. to uh, uh southern free slaves. Uh, black slaves that they get 40 acres in a mule so to put this kind of um um, challenge in it of 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 the north winning the civil war and having all of this these kind of um unfulfilled uh, promises. uh promises is is maybe a a a useful kind of uh, if 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 you want to kind of take that um uh, uh perspective of the old south mm-hmm. and and um hold it kind of as a mirror to contemporary America and all of the kind yeah. of injustices yeah. and yeah. inequalities But that's what I find so exist. interesting about it is that, you know, it frames the war as this issue of economics and industry and different yeah. approaches <laughs> to it as opposed to... And the gas part is, you know, there was probably more of that thinking at the time. Like, it's very easy for us with modern eyes to look back and think this was exactly, a very serious yeah. moral issue about human rights. And at the time, they were probably just thinking about business because it's America. like when you look at a film like Gone with the Wind and then you look at the continuing state of America and you're just like yes well isn't that the situation here that you won't acknowledge what the actual side effect of this war was or the actual even yeah like you're more preoccupied with how it was just different people telling or arguing with each other over how to spend their taxes Mm mm-hmm well, I mean, it is worth noting that there's a there's a historian, and I'm just going to gra- drag the uh, grab the actual quote here. Uh, Arthur um, Schlesinger Jr. Uh, argued that the North gave the South in fantasy the victory that they lost, in fact. Mm-hmm. And like one of the things that's striking about portrayals of the South, and particularly here, is the weird sense that the South does not see itself as part of America. Like it's yeah. not like it's called the Civil War. It's not. But as far as it's presented here, it's not a civil war. Yeah. It's an invasion. Yeah. Yeah. It's people coming in. It's your neighbors coming over and crossing a border yeah. into a place where they don't belong yeah. and telling you how to live your life as opposed to yeah. part of like a holistic nation kind of coming to terms with something. But it also kind of like that geographical divide is fascinating because the South would have been more settled by, you know, French and Spanish and, you know, people from those backgrounds versus the North, which would might have been leaned more heavily English or Scandinavian and so Dutch. on and so forth. So you have differing attitudes 
there to begin with in terms of how to live your life and how you look at people and I mean that's something you can see reflected in Europe today not just in the States exactly. it's just in yeah. a bigger scale so. they, they have a portrait of their, <laughs> their president yes on, during that yeah. big sort of presentation the bazaar you know yeah. sort of stuff. It, it is um, also in terms of that like I think Rena sort of alluded to it earlier the scene where like how Scarlet rebuilds her fortune is very, very revealing. It's very, very interesting in terms of like recapturing the Southern ideal. Because she has obviously this conversation with Ashley about like, can we use freed slaves? She's like, well, they cost too much. So she basically, she brings in what is effectively slave labor from prison. Mm-hmm. And you have the the slave, the, you know, the guy who's working them, who's like, remember, no questions and no interjections. What's, what do you call it? Is the like 13th Amendment or the... Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is Ava DuVernay's sort of discussion yeah. of like the use of yeah. prison labor yeah, yeah. as an like as a, as a supplement replacement, for, yeah, yeah, for that's slave an labor. And, yeah. yeah, that's it exactly. I, the prison yeah. industrial complex, yeah. and that's even the thing about her self fulfillment and regrowth is it's it's built entirely on this American ideology of capitalism. And, oh, it's Johnny Gallagher. Yeah, no questions and no interference, <laughs> um, which is and it, oh, it all happens off stage, but it's very clear what's happening off stage. Mm-hmm. It's like remember the plantation. We're gonna do that. Here, but now. worse. Yeah, yeah, but it's going to be how it actually <laughs> happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Scarlett's a okay with that uh, because that's that's what it takes to rebuild what she has, which is yeah. and the film is a perfect metaphor for capitalism. Exactly, it's like yeah. you are literally just stamping poor people into nothing so you can hang on to your money. I know there's a lot of uh, little ideology threads that I find fascinating. That particularly about how uh, what about land and about money and about business and getting the big staircase to weep on uh, is mm-hmm. is huge part of what gives her her value which I did find hard to empathize with in terms of her character because yeah she had a backbone and I liked it in the period of reconstruction when they're in Tara and she's telling her sisters to stop being so you know useless useless <laughs> uh and she's taking care of Nelly and, and I, I just wanted her dream to feel more authentic because it was wrapped up in how rich she needed to be and how better she needed to be than other people and how she needed Ashley. And it's just like, really? But see, well, that that to me is very true to who she is because yeah. like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. she's not, Scarlett comes into it as someone for whom, it's like she's been socialized to feel like she should be romantically involved with other people. She doesn't actually give a Damn. damn about anyone. Yeah. <laughs> like the only And perhaps thing. Ashley. Yeah, but she but does even like, the ideal she, of Ashley. Yes, she likes Ashley. Ashley's kind of crap. The film is very clear oh on God. Ashley being crap. Ashley's I, such a drip. <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for Ashley. We'll come back to this. Ashley is a man born entirely into the wrong time. <laughs> Let's put um, it that way. But no, like, I mean... Jebediah so Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> for, for Scarlet, like, the acquisition of wealth and power and influence, because that is what feeds her. Like, that's what she considers important. That's what she considers integral to her p- place in the world. Like, she doesn't actually care about her relationships with anybody yeah. until the end when like a dawning hint of maturity comes over her <laughs> and she's like oh crap like, I might I'm, actually lose something after I've decided everybody what I... has died <laughs> yeah. like, oh, uh, there's a real sense of you know again like, like her love of Tara like when it's not until she's going to lose Rhett that she's like actually yeah. turns out panicking oh damn okay, I really no. don't like to lose stuff yeah yeah <laughs> but I mean like her her love of Tara is clear throughout the whole thing it's very clearly linked to her identity and who she considers herself to be and um the thing that I like about you see the why she and Rhett are so well matched and that why she I think very stubbornly 
suppresses how much she loves him is the fact that he's the only person in it who sees her for who she is and he actually loves her for it That's like from, yeah. the point, yeah. from the very first time that they meet he's just like oh i don't want you to be some like wilting flower daisy like i like you i think you're great yeah and then he's constantly just like oh my god get a load of this one she's amazing and the chemistry you know? is great but yeah, yeah. And particular all the way no. through yeah. the film whenever she, he does something uh, and she immediately knee jerks and says, "Yeah, you're, you know, you're yeah, like scandal. that part with the where they're doing <laughs> the fundraiser." <laughs> <laughs> that we also weren't allowed to use the F word. Oh, no. like the, the David Salnitz list of words you weren't allowed to say. <laughs> Sorry. That part when they're doing the fundraiser for the South and he's just like $250 in gold and they're like, for who? And he says, for Mrs. Charles Hamilton, the entire place practically faints. And he's like, <gasps> she will not consider it, sir. And she's like, oh, yes, she oh, will. Because yeah, she... <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, he knew that she was going to react that way and that she Damn. love it. Like the two of them are so <laughs> perfect for each other. Yeah, no, And they're I... surrounded by all these people who are just clutching straws going, oh my God, we can't do this, we can't do this. And especially this. the level of tussid toxicity that it, it it goes to uh, you know incredibly uncomfortable to watch yeah. yeah now obviously because you can you can see that the abusive side of Rhett is really mm-hmm. hard to watch it and the, but they're they're but both it, it abusers I think. absolutely yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it almost doesn't fit with who Rhett is up until that point like but you don't see enough no. of them to consider no Blanket oh, he is a cat. No, he's oh, not. Oh, Rat is. Sorry, Rat is awful. But Rat is aware sorry. of it's awful. Oh, sorry. Okay. I love. I love. I love Rat. And and, and, and I. I find. I'm the worst. I find. Sorry, I'm on your I'm sorry, side, Grace. Uh, we yeah. The, <laughs> no, you didn't let me finish. Uh, you don't get to finish, Darren. <laughs> the Ashley of this conversation, apparently. You shouldn't have. You shouldn't have started. Um, but yeah, okay. Don't open your silly little mouth. Okay. My thing about Red is, I would argue, Red is unequivocally from the start absolutely terrible, and it's very clear from the outset that he's absolutely terrible. He's a profiteer. He's incredibly cynical. He's manipulative. He's crass. He's, he's staring from the first time yeah. you see him. Yeah. Right. But anyway, you no, 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 no. are one of those people in the saloon. Oh, hold, hold on. Okay, let me finish my point. What makes it's Rhett, clear that everyone in the story thinks he's terrible. What makes Rhett if you great, actually think he's terrible. What makes Rhett great, building on that, letting me reach the end of my point, what makes Rhett great is that he's in an environment where the fact that he doesn't care about anything else, and the fact that he's a cad, and the fact that he's genuinely awful and is like self-destructive and toxic to everybody around him, doesn't really matter. Tell me, what movie did you watch? Yeah, you're not allowed to finish. What the hell? You you've run out of your finished privileges, there. Okay, but I was. Gonna... <laughs> how, how do you say okay? You have to fight us and say no. Damn it! I'm going to say what I have to say. <laughs> Apparently, the Ashley of this. That's what Rhett would do. <laughs> have we learned nothing? Rhett is not a good person. Um, but anyway, my my point is that like putting him in the context of the South, which is populated by these people who are just awful, means that his transparent awfulness and his rejection mm. of, like, social norms is kind of something that you champion. Like, the fact that he's cynical and crass and incredibly vulgar and, like, aware of the fact that everything he's doing is completely pointless, the, the point of nihilism, almost, mm. is refreshing in the context of people who believe slavery is a good thing and should be preserved. Uh, I, 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 I
he cared a lot about the idle gossip and that made me think jeez you're really like this is what I meant when oh, I thought about not, the not, for his daughter not so much in for himself yeah for his yeah. daughter I, yeah but he did because he said he was jealous later on and okay. I guess there were like when that that's incredibly uncomfortable scene when he's drinking and he's got his her skull in his hands and then right. promptly takes her up presumably quite non-consensually to the bedroom and but it's apologizes okay because for his conduct because it's 1939 we get a looking very happy the following she was morning. very happy the following morning before he apologized uh but regardless yeah. of that uh, i there his character ashley's character ashley is also someone who would have left um scarlet uh in love with him without giving her the release of confessing his love for nelly which is just really drippy of him, yeah. you know, like, and he kisses her and it's just like the men are just really, yeah. they're so weak compared to the women. And Nellie is the strongest character who I loved watching the most because she had so much dignity in the face of all that gossip and survived so much. Um, I found her relationship with Scarlett to be the most interesting uh, and honest and sincere and... um and valuable uh which was why it was it, it fill ends with her dying because uh, it's it's that's where the story ends that's, that's where the story ends. ends because yeah when right leaving is a small footnote to that it obviously it has b- bigger context and uh, bigger relevance in the context of the romance but you know you do feel watching in 2019 yeah thankfully yeah. because she's going to be better off now but or, or until she, until she yeah. says well, i'll think of a new way to get it off damn. Uh, like <laughs> i'm gonna rebuild and i'll figure a new way to get him back oh you were the, going so well there for a second Scarlett. But the, the end of the film and i guess the end of the book isn't the end of the story no no and in fact the sequel to gone with the wind has been like hollywood's holy grail for decades and decades. Mm. Like in the 70s, they had people commissioned to write books that they would adapt directly into sequels. There was a TV miniseries called Scarlet, actually. Oh, Which wow. starred Timothy Dalton. Of course it did. I know, Butler? like Heathcliff. Basically, yeah, as Rhett Butler, which is basically like in case you needed confirmation that Rhett is nearly Heathcliff. I feel like we have some work to take you down on, on your assassination of, of, of Rhett Butler. I don't know. Grace. Oh, I mean... The, is it just the, the straightforwardly wrong? But, are you, but do we do we want to say why? I mean, to me, like having Rhett there is the perfect foil for Scarlet. Like the two of them are so well suited to mm-hmm. one another. But the thing that stands out about them and what I both like about them, or what I like about them both even, is that like they're so willing to call out the bullshit Damn. that exists around them. Maybe not yeah. the very obvious elephant in the room, but like that scene early on where Rhett is a guest at um, Twelve Oaks and he's like, you know, literally we go to war, you all are Damn. like, you do realize yeah. this. And I'm they're just like, come. no, like, no, we are, we have the moral upper hand because the South is so superior and great. And he's like, you have no cannons, you have no shipyards, you have... Like, you have nothing. You're screwed, basically. Mm. Why are you so offended when I tell you this? And then the fact as well that I think the way he treats Scarlet, like, he treats Scarlet with such a measure of respect compared to everyone else around her who's just kind of like, oh, Katie Scarlet O'Hara, you need to, like, grow up and get over yourself and stop carrying on like this. And he's like, no, literally keep doing what you're doing. I think you're perfect. Yeah, which is so warming. And then the fact as well that what I 
I find Rhett so complex as well because he's somebody who is very much about his own personal gain, which again, like the capitalist undertones of this whole story. Mm -hmm. He's the perfect embodiment He's a blockade runner. He's He's a blockade blockade. runner. He squirrels away all of his money. He plays like cards with all of the guards in prison so they don't hang him. He loses eventually. And then gets all of his money back because it was never taken from him because he knew how to hide it. And then... um, later on oh yeah but there's also the part where he leaves scarlet after they escape from atlanta because Mm -hmm. he's like actually you know what i am gonna go and fight for the south even though like i hated my family and the southern values that got me thrown only when it's truly lost and Mm -hmm. only like you know all of the things that basically ruined my young life i'm still gonna go and fight for because you know at the end of the day that's who i am and that's where i come from which is exactly what scarlet is like like she always keeps going back to tara and she's like tara is who i am tara is what represents me I have to keep fighting for this. And then later on when they get married and they have a daughter and Rhett realizes, look, I can be like the outcast if I want to be. And that works for me, but I can't like, I can't have my daughter grow up a social no. like yeah. outcast. That's not going to work. So I have to go back and play all these people. But that's what I like that like everything that he does is so knowing, you know, it's, yeah. it's very calculated. It's very shrewd. <laughs> and in ways that Scarlet is not shrewd for all of her smarts and yeah. all of her strategizing, she can never see the long-term issue, whereas Rhett is very much like, we need to literally go back and kiss everyone's arses or Bonnie will never be received in polite society. He sees much better than anyone Mm -hmm. else who they all are. Yeah. Like he, he, and you can see that in the way he treats people as well. Like, exactly, you know. yeah. but he's he's kind of like, no, we're not, we're not, we're not gentlemen. We're we're rapacious capitalists, mm-hmm. and your kind of um, fantasies and pretensions will be your downfall. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why he really dislikes Ashley because Ashley comes from that really like almost romantic poet view of life where it's like Don't it's all you. about yeah, yeah like it's just it's all honor, about you know dignity. like honor dignity beauty he just wants everything to be lovely and why do we have to worry ourselves with all of the cares of the world and all this sort of stuff and Rhett's like okay you're an idiot um but he has tremendous respect for Melly and tremendous respect for Mammy uh-huh. and mm, yeah. and God help him even for Scarlet so. I mean, Ashley has But there's a lot also of literally a part where Red says, like, yeah. I believe in Red Butler, he's the only cause I care mm-hmm. about. You know, he literally says, it's just me. And I like mm. I find that refreshing in yeah. the context of everyone yeah. else who's like, Yeah, I'm gonna keep fighting for like this like setup, this this system that works for me, not because I have a sense of identity outside of it, yeah. but just because I don't know how to be anyone other than who I am. Yeah. And yeah. Red and Scarlet do. Like again, in the context of the South, that's really, <coughs> that's what makes him really refreshing, is that like it's a god awful society, so him being so cynical about it is like, yeah, finally, somebody making yeah, sense. Yeah. But I don't think it's even cynicism, it's just like he just sees how it doesn't like work but then i mean i'm not sure how strongly this comes across in the film but he's meant to have had a background where he got kicked out of like military academy and West, West Point, you know, yeah, and yeah. had like you know a, a, a sort of an affair with somebody who was like, ruined just the same and everything and oh, like that, yeah. how that that moral judgment was very much passed more so in the woman in the equation yeah. more so than him you know yeah. mm. and there's he... a great bit in the book as well where like he basically asks scarlet to become his mistress because he doesn't want to marry her because he feels like that would be a disaster which is proved right later on mm-hmm. um and scarlet's just like eh, what would i get out of that except a passel of brats like off. so mm. it's it's marvelous the interplay between them where they're just like no no <laughs> screw you screw you and he is the most sincere and authentic american yeah as well like the, the, the he he is um america, america and, all, and all of its values but also kind of uh, uh, complexity and his sort of guilt mm-hmm. um, of, 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 of like, it's also America's conscience. Yeah. 
see in 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 rest. Yeah, which is interesting as well. I think so too. And I I do love the like uh, the the relationship between um him and um and Scarlet. Even though even though I really don't like um Wuthering Heights. Yeah, because I I feel like these are much less repressed characters. Mm -hmm. It is sad that they can't um, get it together, but it's not because of their their repression. It is it's almost the opposite. It's because of the 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 kind of strength of their feeling that they keep Mm -hmm. kind of upsetting each other. Yeah, yeah, and also just like I mean, that to me is just a very true to life portrait of relationships where you can have people who are so perfectly suited for one another but they just can't figure it out it's like there's such a thing as being too good for one another you know like you can't figure out a way to exist under one roof when you have two such strong personalities like as business partners the two of them would have been perfect Mm. yeah so i kind of feel like rep maybe should have would have had more of a problem with using indentured servitude but yeah yeah i love i love ashley's objection which is like we can't use indentured servitude but okay, yeah, yeah. And a very token objection to yeah, it. Yeah. But like, it. I do, I feel sorry for Ashley because I just think like, he was not meant to exist at this era in history. He really wasn't. <laughs> like even the part later on when he has a brief moment where he attempts to sort of become a man and be like, no, I'm going to go and get a job and support my family. And then Scarlett's just like, eh, no, you're not. <laughs> why would you do that? And throws a big hissy fit and Melly's just like, why would you do this? What's wrong with you? He's like, well, you're I really can't fight her. both of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, God, she was toiling in the fields and murdering people to keep us alive. <laughs> Jesus, Ashley, you're so useless. You couldn't even keep Sherman out. Yeah. <laughs> what good are you? Yeah. Um, and we got and you a sash. Yeah. It's worth pointing <laughs> and out. And a tunic. Yeah. <laughs> worth pointing out that, that Twelve Oaks is destroyed in the war, whereas Tara isn't. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. And you have those signs that you see. And again, for, for a film, it's a very... Uh, literary film there's a lot of kind of text that appears on screen mm-hmm. even when you're like getting to a film that's four hours long it's like we can't fit all the storytelling in yeah. but yeah. even things like i love the signage in it um things <laughs> like the 12 oaks which is anyone who disturbs the peace of this estate will be prosecuted which then you get the ironic echo later on of the sign being mm-hmm. singed and burned as you look out over the devastated landscape um which is yeah that sort of stuff uh, I really like, but even things like the fact, the fact the movie is so long that like her two husbands die off screen. Scarlett's two husbands are like unceremoniously killed off. And apparently this isn't things, a problem that's unique to the film, not a problem, but it, a, a decision that is necessarily unique to the film. One of the issues with getting the book published was that she, um, Mitchell wrote the book out of sequence. She'd write individual chapters. The first chapter she wrote was the last chapter and she'd sprinkle them throughout. So she'd write individual instances, but not tie them all together. I think that it was one of the husbands killing, killing him off was the most difficult part of the novel. She had all, yeah, probably Frank. Yeah. They had difficulty there where they're just trying to sort of slot them in (laughs) and kind of figure out how to do this. It's like, okay, yeah, just off screen. What's funny (laughs) is that narratively to me, killing them off screen makes perfect sense because it represents exactly how much they meant to Scarlet, which was nothing. So, like, she only marries Charles to get back at Ashley. A, at Ashley, and she only marries Frank because she Needs <laughs> identifies some strategic purpose <laughs> in him. Um, I yeah. love his line of, I shan't go all my life waiting to catch you between, between husbands. husbands. <laughs> yeah. And my favorite part where, like, she sort of stumbles down the stairs and he's like, it doesn't work, Scarlett. And she's like, what? He goes, at the cologne. <laughs> I know you drink and I don't care. <laughs> you can be pissed in front of me. It's cool. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I think the, the fact that Rhett survives is probably one of the most endearing sort of features of him. The fact that he manages to survive a marriage to Scarlet properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that's what makes the end so sad because, like, he pours all of his heart and dreams into Bonnie, and then when Bonnie dies, ironically, because she's a stubborn and ill, uh, Ill short sighted, perhaps, as her mother and grandfather, then um, that's the last drawing he can leave. Even if Melly had not died instantaneously, then maybe he could have stuck around for a while, but he's just like, that's it, I, I can't, without like a support system to put up with you, I can't be around you. So. Well, without a, a reason to kind of stay together, that's the kind of thing with, you know, you, you hear it often with really sad families, is the idea of mm-hmm. children keeping parents together, yeah, you know, yeah. to a certain extent. So there's a real sense of that being one of the issues. I think that they're, like, their love for each other, or that connection, mm-hmm. kind of calling it love is almost kind of the, the almost like the wrong word for it. There's mm-hmm. some, but there, there, there's some very kind of spiritual connection between them. That, yeah. that, 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 that's, um, that you can't imagine him because he's there, 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 he's a relatively young man. She's a relatively young woman. Some time has passed. But the, years, they're not, not they can't, starts, right? no. they can't it's stay away from each yeah. other. Like the end, the yeah. end of this movie is, is it's not the, yeah. she, that's, she, that's she, the she is not naive. I'm just like, okay, no, they that. obviously got back together at some point in the future. Of course. I, I don't mean, need to know how, but I just, I know that they did because I can't handle the alternative. Well, the, the premise of, the premise of Scarlet is that they moved to Ireland together. Okay. My mother read it and I told her not okay. to tell me anything. Oh, oh sorry. Sorry. <laughs> this no, is she the told me that zone. much and I was just like, no, no more. I'm sorry. The spoiler Whoa! <laughs> yeah, that's that's that's, that's the sequel. The, that that would there. be my instant like, okay, well, you did not understand the uh, <laughs> the core theme correctly. of this, uh, so the red soil, mind. the red soil of Tara. Yeah. Um, is it worth mentioning actually? And again, it's the moment where she the, the red soil. I think of the bit where she goes out and she throws it. That's as much as Tara you'll ever have. Yeah, uh, the films. <laughs> uh, again, you buried your other breaths after you killed my mother. <laughs> Like, oh yeah, like oh. that that it's rough. That whole thing is like <laughs> I, I don't want to reopen the whole you know Gone with the Wind and race, uh, but it is kind of interesting how, despite the film tiptoeing around race, it's very very obvious about class because mm-hmm. it's like yeah. the overseer Again, capitalism. Oh yeah, yeah, and America in one go. The, this weird like <coughs> we could never say the n word, but we're just gonna throw around white trash, trash casually. Um, but it's and I know I'm not that's not suggesting equivalence between the two terms, but just like the way in which the film is sensitive to yeah. particular things and just like goes to town on other things. Mm-hmm. But it's like you even have like um, you have Mammy referring to them as white trash, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah. But like the, the but si- you know that like that's the point because even Mammy in her mind is above them, like you know, and that's probably not the way other people around her would think necessarily but that's what i find so interesting is that in the context of the film the people that they treat most viciously are other white are people. poor white people yeah. yeah so and and like a lot of the invading northerners are all white people the person she shoots in the face is a white person yeah. but like, e- it's yeah it's, it's even strange. even things like the fact that you know <coughs> one of the sins of northern invasion you know you know, you don't get too much of freeing the slaves outside the fact, well, it's a bit of an economic inconvenience, but all our slaves stick around anyway. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, maybe we pay them with like, you know, dead relatives goods. I don't know. Because it's like, how are you going to get $300 to pay, you know, the taxes that are due on this estate? And it's like, Porky, maybe you should be wondering how she's going to pay you, given you're not a slave anymore. <laughs> but like, it's one of the big sins in the movie's eye of like mm-hmm. northern intervention and kind of yeah. reconstruction. The carpetbaggers which come down, but yeah. also the fact that they they 
elevate and disrupt the class system. So you have like the overseer, you know, who has had this child out of wedlock with this girl that they consider to be mm-hmm. white trash. Um, finally married her. It, yeah, he finally High married her. High time you made her your wife. But no, yeah, but even, even then it's with disdain. Because yeah. oh, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, having the child out of wedlock is a disgrace and it was good for you that it was stillborn, which yeah. is congratulations. Born and yeah. mercifully has died. Yeah, lucky you. You must dismiss Jonas Foreman immediately. And, and it, like, because when I was watching it, I was like, is the issue that he had the child out of wedlock? Is that like, is it disrepute? Is that what? And it, it becomes very clear over the course of this. Nope, it's just poor people having kids. That's the problem. That's yeah. the problem. Just um, poor people existing. Yeah. Like, and, how dare they? And like the moment where he comes to the estate and he threatens to buy it, it's like, damn Yankees empowering poor people mm-hmm. um, which is yeah very it's a, Ooh, it's a yeah. really weird dynamic but that's, like that's what I find so fascinating about this is a, a portrait of history is that and, and like what I said earlier I think in the minds of there, there's a certain mindset that like the civil war was not anything to do with race like this was a footnote that the slaves got freed it was just about the northerners coming in State and telling rights. us yeah. how to do business and how much tax to pay which they're still arguing about to this yeah. day so like I mean, yeah, they're also still, yeah, still arguing about the issue with the Confederate. Like, they just want to ignore the racial aspect. They're like, oh, what? Like, that wasn't a big deal. But, like, when you came in and you tried to take our land and make us pay people, like, how dare you? Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. Did you think about how it would affect Southern business and industry? Yeah. At all. Well, we was... couldn't squirrel away all of our money to build these giant plantations of uh, other people's And how we wouldn't be able to save face. Yeah. We'd have to, like, socialize with people who are not our betters. But not race. Let's be absolutely clear. Not about race. Yeah, not just not race. our betters. No. Not yeah. our betters. No. They're white people who are not our betters. Mm-hmm. We'd have to socialize with mm-hmm. them. Uh, which is, yeah, a really fascinating sort mm-hmm. of strange dynamic at, at the heart yeah. of the story. Because even later on, like, when, when Scarlett takes over the, the lumber uh, business from Frank and Melly's like, you're doing business with the people who, like, cheated us and tried to make us starve and all this. And she's like, nope, war's over. Don't ask for credit. Yeah, that, that really great sign. <laughs> Again, really great signage yeah. from the film. Um, war's over, no credit given. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's why I like Scarlett so much because she's such a representation of the whole, like, the fact, like, we like to think of ourselves as moral, principled people, but when it comes down to it, so much of society is just built on, like, you know, minding yourself. And if you have yeah. to throw out mm. your entire moral value system to do that, then that's what you're going to do. And that's what she does. Because she's just like, we could sit here and, you know, talk about the principles of this, but it's not going to feed any of us and it's not going to keep a roof over our heads. So we have to make do. And we're going to beat the Yankees at their own game. It's an an interesting thing. It's a very sort of like a 19th century sort of philosophy that took over um, America, this kind of idea of individualism and and, and kind of self-actualization as a sort of a remedy to all of these sort of um uh, uh fantasy ideals that we've, we that 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 people had uh, constructed because we see that in the movie how sort of old fashioned um and um principled these 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 people are but it, it's 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 all kind of like nonsense like 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 uh, um um, Ashley's brother challenging um, Rhett to a um, to a duel, or to a duel. Like yeah, threatening yeah. him to get Rhett to challenge him to a duel. Exactly, yeah, him, because that's what you're meant to do. Yeah, but it's it's but it's complete nonsense because he'll kill you immediately. Yeah, yeah. Where it is so it's one of the best shots in the south as he's proved on a number of occasions. Exactly, <laughs> that's yeah. Brother, not yeah. Ashley's brother, but yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, but they are uh, cousins. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's very true. <laughs> they're all one big family. Yeah. yeah, you know they, they always marry, marry their cousins. <laughs> 
But it's okay Sorry. because they can still Sorry. look down on. <laughs> it was it was it was Shelbyville oh. who. Um, yeah, who looked down on the trailer park people. Yeah. I kind of like I kind of love that the overseer that that was the issue. Well, that he was marrying the poor white trash girl, so she's not even related to you. <laughs> but but there, there's kind of an extent to which there 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 is a sort of a grounded stability in um in looking looking out for um kind of oneself mm-hmm. and having kind of one's own sort of uh projects and independence mm-hmm. yeah. where which is very sort of um, um, american um and less less sort of there, there there's less sort of fakeness about it at least in this movie yeah, yeah it's just kind of mm-hmm. crass and open and about it it's very mm-hmm. explicitly about it you know mm-hmm. yeah because the South has that old, like, European aristocracy almost view of itself where it's like, yeah. you know, this is, a, this is a self-perpetuating system so long as you don't think about the people whose lives have to be completely destroyed to maintain it, which is, you know, like, see the French Revolution or, yeah. like, anything else that happened where it's like, you know, you have the lower classes who are routinely treated like dirt, not even really considered people, who are holding up, like, this backbreaking system that just keeps people in obscene wealth, which, again, is also happening today. Yeah. Like, maybe... Although no, there are places where there are literal slave labor happening. So less mid Atlantic voices. <laughs> I think there's the idea. Gabe, there was some discussion about whether or not Gable would do a Southern accent in the movie, and sort of to what extent it would be Southern, and how it would be voice coached and stuff like that, which is very, very interesting as well. Gable is is very, very good here. Apparently, he was um, when they announced they were doing a film version of Gone with the Wind. Um, naturally everybody was very excited about it it was a massive blockbuster when it was released in print over 1,000 pages long sold for $3 at the time which is equivalent to $50 today but was the best-selling book of that moment and was this huge cultural force when they announced they're making a film fan letters kind of flooded into the studio um, 99% of those fan letters wanted uh, Gable cast um, and like he was the Edward Cullen of his day well that's it well it was the um <laughs> Do you want, like, the, the other 1% was split in a number of interesting ways, but I particularly love that Basil Rathbone yes. was one of the points of contention. I would love to have seen. Um, and it was apparently the fact that I believe Earl Flynn was considered as well at a certain point, mm. And that was what ruled out Betty Davis, if I remember correctly, because she could not work with Flynn. She could not stand with him, <laughs> which is why she didn't get that role um, in the end. Um, which is a good thing. <laughs> Betty Davis is not Scarlett O'Hara. No. Oh, yeah, and Vivian Lee is... Just an incredible actress. Mm-hmm. You said two, two, um, two incredible uh, os- Oscars yeah. for for. I think um, as well, Clark Gable physically is like when you read Rhett's description, he looks absolutely perfect mm-hmm. for it. So like the the idea that he's tall and imposing and and very like conventionally handsome. And has that sort of Will we go back and read some uh, after dark description? No, we won't. Are you also <laughs> going to describe the little the uh, room where all the ladies are napping? Is that? In oh the my book? god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That so was weird. where Andrew and I were like, yeah, okay, this is definitely where this movie's going. But I, I do like the Scarlet waves at the little girl as she's going in as well. It's like we're all family here, but, but don't stop. <laughs> that whole system is just so bizarre. It's like you have to take a nap in the afternoon and you can't show your bosom before three o'clock, and you have to eat like a bird. Like it's all so ludicrous like this is a thing that Scarlet's rebelling against which I find very funny 
Um, and it's worth noting that like the getting Gable was so important to the film's production that Selznick actually had to do a deal with MGM where he split half the production costs. His father, uh, sorry, his father-in-law was owned MGM at the time. So they sold the international distribution rights for half the budget. And to get Gable over, he had to delay production on the film for two years, I believe, which is quite oh. a long delay as well. But that... Enough time to build all the sets. It was, it, well, well, arguably not even that. But also even um, to fill the gap, Selnitz, and again, I absolutely love this as like a PR stunt, decided that what he would do for the next two years to keep the public like breath baited for the release of Gone with the Wind is he would host the search for Scarlet uh, where he would basically invite like he'd host casting sessions all over the United States for women to submit themselves to read for the role Uh, in one particularly memorable event in 1937 on Christmas Day a package was delivered to Selnitz's house uh, which contained a life-size replica of the novel in its dust jacket from which emerged a young girl Singing Merry Christmas, Mr. Selnitz, I am your Scarlet O'Hara. It... Like that's something Scarlet would do. <laughs> <laughs> How uncouth. Um... <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. You, you, you've, just, you've just ruled yourself out. Yeah, yeah. well done. Um, but it, it is worth noting that apparently like, the film had a really troubled production history. Selnitz repeatedly like, would fire writers and bring writers in. And one point of contention was the level of faithfulness to the text and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You had writers who were like, well, he was like, every word in this film should come from the book. You shouldn't actually write anything original in there and like even when why can't I say the (laughs) n-word yeah yeah. Um, well yeah Selnitz argued for the use of that but um, one of the things is like you'd have writers who came in and even when they'd suggest well what if hear us out here what if every word we use is from the book right but we like take sentences from different places and change them around so that we can have scenes that like do what several scenes in the book do, but in one scene to make the movie shorter. And Stanis was like, I'm not entirely convinced by that logic. Because um, one of the arguments was that when the writers observed that, you know, uh, Mitchell was a writer who never did anything once. Um, yeah. There's a tendency, yeah. apparently, it was very, very repetitive, uh, the book, according to some of the writers who worked on it. Um, it's worth noting that in terms of directors, um, two of the directors who worked on Wizard of Oz, including uh, Kukur, um and Fleming, yeah. worked on the film. Um, Kukur, um worked on the film he was known around Hollywood as a women's director um, in large part because he had a long history of getting strong performances from his mm-hmm. female leads and in fact the, the women working on Gone with the Wind really really loved him however it was also a euphemism for the fact that he was openly gay um, and various other sort of stereotypes that arise from that he was fired from the film and there are mm-hmm. various accounts of why he was fired from the film. So there are allegations that he was fired from the film because the work he was turning out was not good. Um, they didn't impress Selznick. The irony is it was argued that uh, Kakor, who had worked with Selznick before, was not strong enough to tell Selznick that the script was terrible at the time <laughs> and the lines were off and the dialogue was awful and would just actually shoot it. And then Selznick fired him for shooting the dialogue that Selznick had insisted be written. Uh, but one of the more interesting allegations, and I'm just going to, I'm going to actually cite a source for this because it's very salacious. This is the uh, Wisecracker, The Life and Times of William Haynes, Hollywood's first openly gay writer, gay star, written by William J. Mann, argued that it was actually Gable who got Kakor fired. Wow. Um, now, there's some suggestion at the time that Gable didn't like him because he felt like Kakor didn't respect him as an actor. Yeah. He was more interested in directing the women, and Gable didn't like that because Gable apparently was very 
insecure about taking the role of butler. He was worried that it pushed beyond his comfort his zone and what he was capable as an actor. And I think he's phenomenal here. And I think yeah. in large part of this because he does push past. Scenes like, for example, when he's informed that um, Scarlett miscarried. Yeah. Um, there was great difficulty shooting that scene because he wanted it shot in silhouette because he wasn't sure that he'd be he, able he'd to... He'd be good at crying. He'd be able to cry. Yeah, he'd be good at crying. So they actually shot two two takes of it. One with the crying and one in silhouette like he liked. And obviously the one they use is the, the crying one. And it's yeah. really powerful. It's really, really good. But he objected to Kakur allegedly on those grounds. But one of the rumours is that apparently Gable had had an affair with uh, William Haynes. He had sex with William Haynes once in the 1920s. Hmm. Uh, Haynes was friends with Kakur. Didn't like it. Uh, appar- apparently the, the rumour is that, yeah, it was only once. Uh, Gable was straight, actually. Um, like even in, the autobiog- even in the biography, they're very explicit that Gable was straight. He only had sex with a man once. And that man... Tried it. <laughs> didn't, didn't like him. Um, it's Hollywood. Um, everybody's gay once in a while. But like that, he he did have sex with, with Haynes once, didn't enjoy it. Um, but Haynes was friends with Kakur. Uh, and apparently Kakur possibly knew that story. And there's also allegations that at one of the parties um, that Kakur had held, um, Andy Lawler, the actor, uh, was at a party, possibly coked out of his mind and declared that George is directing one of Billy's old tricks. Got a massive laugh at the party. Ooh. Gable heard about this and was like, well, that, that's not going to stand. And then basically had Kakor fired. Uh, Kakor was replaced by Fleming, mm-hmm. um, who was a much, he was known as a man's director mm-hmm. uh, through and through. Um, used that's a lot not of, gay at all. Yeah, not gay at all. Perfectly manly. Um, used lots of uh, homophobic slurs, apparently, and was... Anti-Semitic, which is very interesting in the context of being hired by Selznick to do the direction. Uh, apparently, um, Vivian Lee actually, when she heard about the firing, like went up to Selznick's office in full costume in order to protest and say that Kakor should be brought back. Throughout filming, herself and uh, Olivia uh, sorry, um, would go and uh, they would actually get coaching from Kakor on Sundays because wow. they work six days a week and he would coach them throughout the filming as well, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting is the Seven days into the shoot, Gone with the Wind was five days behind schedule, which is quite <laughs> impressive by the standards of the time. Um, in order to speed things up, apparently Fleming, even though he was a man, you know, he was a man. Seven days into the shoot. That was the whole bit where they were setting fire to Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they somehow ended up five days behind. Um, but even things like the opening scene where Scarlet's introduced had to be reshot because uh, Selznick did not like the color of her dress. Uh, that's the level of control that we're operating at here. But Fleming, it was too much for Fleming. Fleming faked a nervous breakdown, which I kind of love. He didn't Fair have a nervous me. breakdown. Fair he faked a nervous breakdown in order to get out of directing it. And what happened is that um, Selznick apparently found out that he faked, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, he hired Sam Wood to direct um, in his place, then told Fleming that he knew that Fleming had faked it got him back, hired him as director as well, and arranged that in order to get the film back on schedule, Fleming and Wood would shoot simultaneously segments of the film. You have stories of actors who would literally be like shuttle bust from one set to another. They'd spend the morning shooting with Fleming, (laughs) who would then spend the afternoon preparing for like tomorrow's shoot and then be bussed over to work with Sam Wood, who would then spend, who had spent the morning getting ready for the afternoon shoot and the back and forth between them. Apparently Gable um, only worked with Fleming. 
Um, apparently mm-hmm. Selznick was much more deferential to Gable than to Lee. Yeah. Um, Lee worked, I think, 130 odd days on the film and Gable worked 91 in total. Wow. Um, because obviously that sort of stuff. But it's an absolutely fascinating like illustration of how the sausage gets made in terms of filmmaking. Can we talk about um, the outfits in this? The costume's amazing. Yeah. Oh, the red dress alone. Yeah. It's yeah. that kind it, of like almost... Uh, like RuPaul's Drag Race style reveal of her coming in the door and Rhett just leaving her there in yeah. the doorway and it just being the look on her face really being like what? And yeah. Because Vivian Lee's um, features are perfect for mm-hmm. that. Like she, you know, she has that kind of feline look off her face yeah. with like the arched eyebrow and everything. She, so then like the camera slow pan in, it's like, oh, could she possibly beautiful. look more like an evil fallen woman? <laughs> and then Millie walks right up to her and kisses her in the cheek and is like, come and meet everyone. And her very, very, very nice breath. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, yeah. sorry, I said that a weird way. She, <laughs> oh yeah. In case there's any ambiguity oh, there. Yeah. This part. <laughs> um, uh, she, 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 she had a big uh, kind of a bit of a problem like as an actress per, at the time perhaps it's a good problem to have but a problem of not being taken seriously mm-hmm. because of like how fantastically beautiful she was yeah. uh, but a bit because she, she had done more kind of work on stage mm-hmm. um, but in terms of costumes um, as well um all of Rhett's suits are oh, yeah. just mm-hmm. oh incredible, and the the, the this weird sort of like a, a a a tapering as well, like on 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 so many of them. Um, it's weird what what we both look at in terms of costumes. Like I did not notice the tapering at all. No, I noticed the corsetry, but not the the tapering of the suits. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they, he, he's just so sharp and his like, like hair kind of like throughout. But you also have, you, oh, yeah. you also have with both of them, with Red and with Scarlet, when, when, when they get, um, uh, kind of, uh, tired or bedraggled. They look fantastic, but in a sort of like a different way with like his stubble and with her sort of like kind of, Sweaty hair, kind of. A couple of strands of hair out of place, but still gelled, kind of dangling over his forehead. She's just feeling slightly guilty over Frank being shot. Yeah. Is she feeling slightly guilty? Oh no, she does. Like after after she finds it out, and then she hits the bottle in a big way. Like you can tell she's actually like, I went too far. Because I actually wrote in my notes, is she really underlined? Because I think Rhett comes in, it's like you're not really, and I'm like, yeah. No, no, no. He's he's saying to her, you don't like you're drunk. Stop acting like you're not drunk. Mm -hmm. Not stop acting like you're not sad. You're a criminal who's been caught. I thought, yeah. Mm -hmm. You're you're not sad. You're sorry that you got caught. You're not sorry that it happened. You're sorry that yeah. I don't know. Well, that's his reading. Yeah. I think she does feel quite upset. I think she feels it. bad, but she can't resist yeah. uh, going toe to toe with Rhett. Mm-hmm. Like, she, oh, she otherwise is in that room jerking herself into oblivion. Mm-hmm. But when Rhett shows up, it's like, hang on, I gotta, I gotta show cologne. Up. Let's I get some cologne on. I'm not gonna let him win. I gotta Gotta gargle this bad boy. The score is phenomenal. Like it was in my head all all day yesterday. Just that the the sweeping, you know. It's it's just it's just really beautiful and yeah the burning of Atlanta sequence I could talk about it for ages it's yeah. just the the scale of uh, it's the, the scale of old filmmaking and again yeah. it's it's a triumph of the studio system like today you do it with CGI but yeah. I mean that shot of her wandering we alluded to it before John but that shot of her 
wandering through the dead soldiers or dead and dying soldiers yeah. in Atlanta as the camera pulls back. And you never back. lose her. Like, even no. at the end of the frame, you're still like, there she is in the big, massive hat. Yeah. And again, like, today you do it with CGI, with trickery, with composites mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But back then, it's it's amazing that you're able to set up and do these things. And when we talked about The Wizard of Oz last week, it's this that level... a companion piece uh, very piece. much. Because yeah. like, it's all about kind of home. Yeah. yeah, there's no place like home. Yeah. And again, she leaves home and then comes yeah. back to home and ends up. Except this is you know, and then the movie continues for the same amount of time yeah. after she gets home. But she says like kind of love of the land. There's no getting away from it. Yeah, yeah. Her, her very stage Irish, Irish father. Irish. Yeah, her yeah, stage yeah. Irish father who was ran out of Ireland because he killed an English officer. Oh yeah, oh. really. Yeah. But it's also the I, I wonder about the the. <laughs> the, the color films were around in the 30s but i suppose there was only there was wizard of oz and gone with the wind in 1939 that were probably one of the first big scale color yeah. movies yeah. to be popular at least there were color movies before then but this seemed to be the in affecting well, the way it was shot like showing a lot of the sky and yeah. showing a lot of the color of the sky and, and really emphasizing that kind of the drama in the landscape, the way black and white films didn't quite yeah. do the same. I mean, even, even the silhouettes at night, because again, there's there's lots of wonderful shots, and you point out the shots of the sky, but where it's red and it's mm. orange and it's yeah. yellow, in a way that in like black and white, you wouldn't necessarily yeah. know that it's dusk or it's dawn. Yeah. Or in and real life, it's... Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. That scene where um, Melly has given birth and Scarlett's sitting with her and they're in the dark and there's just like the orange backlight yeah. just outside yeah. is beautiful. I mean, even the, the intermission <coughs> shots are kind of overture shots yeah. of that Scarlet standing with the tree in front of like what's probably a map painting of the house and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. Those are, are absolutely kind of beautiful in a way that, you know, that filmmaking of the time really, really mm-hmm. is. And I mean, I think, I think you're onto something with that transition to color. Because I mean, with The Wizard of Oz, you have that movement from mm-hmm. sepia to like bright, beautiful sort of cameras, bright, beautiful sort of Oz. But you have the same sort of, again, triumphant camera movement as yeah. well, where like when Dorothy goes to Oz, you have a pan. It isn't as impressive as like moving through the, so- the soldier field or kind of moving through like yeah. Atlanta as it's burning. But it's a similar sort of thing. It's like, well, now... It's about scale and yeah. going into different worlds and creating a universe that you're bringing your audience into and I guess it's even when it comes down to films that are epic on this scale the story itself is a melodrama and the film is an epic and it, it kind of did start that trend of telling stories about love and romance and losing fortune which could be a small story set on an epic canvas. on an epic scale which is the American dream and and, yeah. and why I think it, it it resonated so much in the 1940s during World War Two as well, yeah. I think it was, and coming out of the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so, so yeah. many stories are kind of like that. Like even yeah. Star Wars, I feel like is 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 a sort of a melodrama within within oh, an within, within an epic. Yeah, your yeah. yeah. It's basically yeah. like dad most, stuff. Most stories are about yeah. something very human and personal yeah. and intimate, just set against a wider background, yeah. whether that's allegorical or just the setting. And <laughs> I think the allegories track um, quite well. Um, also because like, like I think a kind sort of interpretation at least of of an argument for the movie having nuance in term in terms of history and uh, civil war is there there there's a line when they're talking about the melodrama but that it could be applied to the kind of epic history of it where where I think it's Rhett says to uh, Vivian um um. Uh, he he speaks about loving something that doesn't really exist yeah. mm-hmm. when they're ta- ta- talking about um, 
Ashley. Ashley. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually true. There is something quite nice about that her clucking that uh, at the end because you can inter- you can interpret that as the, the whole fantasy of the south uh, as being well you didn't this this thing yeah. didn't exist anymore the only thing true is is land and yeah. Yeah. and you'll get and you'll get right back eventually yeah. but you know and and the fantasy is well she's built up around herself yeah. like that's i just always found scarlet interesting as being someone who was sort of just told to get married and pretend like you're interested in other people when she's clearly only really interested in herself mm-hmm. like and that's not something that you see that often, even in this day and age, like there's always some shite romantic subplot yeah. in a woman's story. She's never allowed to just think about herself for the entire thing, mm-hmm. unless she's, you know, evil or something. So, yeah. Um, and I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that line that you think applies to a broader kind of historical context. Yeah, if 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 we're being generous, I think we can. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd like I'd like the it's things like that that suggest there's maybe more kind of context mm-hmm. context and less less sort of kind of historical naivety yeah, yeah. but it also implies a certain like maturity and coming to terms on her part that you know she could surround herself with all of this very gaudy wealth and privilege and fundamentally what's actually been keeping her going is a very primal connection which yeah. is her connection to the place where she grew up like to her home and then in a different way to rest as well yeah so, which you know is something that i feel it probably resonates with quite a lot of people reaching a certain age and realizing maybe the stuff you've worked really hard for isn't actually that important to you. Yeah, yeah. That's actually quite true. That did ring through a lot, especially when she's uh, weeping dramatically on that really magnificent staircase. And on that note, I... I with the voiceovers repeating yeah. the themes of the film in oh, case you haven't got there the it is. you're waiting for like the heads of like her father to guys start circling the body mm-hmm. and have disembodied uh, but it's also like who doesn't want the staircase that magnificent to to melodramatically storm up or down and throw yourself against yeah or throw, or throw yourself down you yeah. know mm-hmm. like a, I think there's once you have a staircase like that you're just asking I'm, for drama yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean if you have a perfectly normal life within that sort of environment you're yeah. just not doing you're it not right doing no. it. Yeah, you're doing have it wrong. a staircase yeah. like that unless you're falling down in it or sitting falling. down reading the morning paper being like yeah. you know it's been a while since somebody's thrown themselves down those stairs <laughs> I feel like we're not taking advantage I think, need, I think we need to weep on this for a yeah. little bit that, yeah. uh, I mean we might as well just in, it, install a styro or something like, you know, sort of like a, an electric stair lift you know um it, it just in terms of that actually it's worth have I, a little scent, uh, fence set up in the garden for <laughs> tragedies yeah, <but> <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm wary of kind of saying this because again I don't want to sound like I'm being too critical I actually really like the shift from the epic first half yeah. which is all about like the civil war into the intimate kind of like personal relationship Saving psychodrama face, gossip yeah. and like yeah, in the second half yeah. like they, they are it's, it's very much a game of two halves and I like the juxtaposition between them but I did kind of and again listeners will be familiar with this as something that i tend to do in movies that are kind of and doesn't help the is darren a robot case but um you are when, a robot when, we know this this when, is not a debate when when bonnie gets on the i hadn't seen the movie before so you when, didn't know what happened to i didn't bonnie. know what happens to bonnie but when bonnie got up on the horse and her parents are arguing and she's like I'm going to go do a jump. And Scarlet's like, you probably shouldn't do a jump. And Rhett's like, maybe let her do a jump. It's like, I raised the bar and everything. I I don't know if I chuckled out loud, Andrew. Maybe I didn't. <laughs> but inside my head, I was like, I know you exactly know yeah. where this is going. But One also, dead kid. Just like dad. Yeah, just, 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 just like I think she actually literally says just like dad. She says just like Paul. I hope like this Paul. isn't seen yeah. as an argument against the um, kind of uh, the the 
They, no, not, they, it's they, not a they, criticism. They, of it. It's not, no, no, no. But but, but, I think uh, melodrama works. On I want. Yeah. I want. No, sorry. What what I was thinking is kind of. I hope people don't see the movie as a cautionary tale <laughs> about, 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 about jumping over yeah. over fences. Because look at how uh, happy. Pa is at the beginning. Look how alive he feels jumping <laughs> over that fence. And look at how gallant um, Rhett is with the horse. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, sure, yeah. every once in a while you'll stumble over a fence. Because I, 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 I want... Some people make fences like Ashley. Some people jump them like Rhett. Because I want Bonnie to be like the, the, the greatest kind of horsewoman in 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 in, in, <laughs> in the, the south and 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 not to be af- afraid of jumping over fences mm-hmm. but it was it reminded me of yeah it reminded me of was it uh, your name which has a moment where two, again we're in the yeah, sports yeah. zone where two characters are like about to touch and be united for the first time and then like they're snapped away by fate and i think i i did cackle out loud at that one because it was the logic of like what is the worst thing that can happen to these two characters in this scene because that's what the movie's committed to and then nelly uh, dies in the next yeah. scene yeah. Yeah. but that's just the thing it's like you know it's a sort of it starts off this series life. of events where everything just collapses yeah. around them actually this reminds me of the uh, again back to the staircase uh, like the next scene is nelly and mammy walking up the staircase while she talks her through the very dramatic direct aftermath of the yeah. scene before, yeah. which is coming out with the shotgun and shooting the horse. And then for a while, I thought he'd shoot himself. And, and oh, yeah, just, that we oh, don't no, get to see oh, any no. of that. No, it was Hayes Code Central. You can't be yeah. shooting a horse. Um, yeah. That's I couldn't even be showing a dead kid. It was, yeah. That was against the Hayes Code. And a bosom. Yeah. They were breaking. They were definitely... Well, I mean, you have to be faithful to the text, and yeah. the text was very explicit on that point. Yes, yeah, it was a very dark, and it was. She had really, nice breasts. <laughs> very <laughs> nice breasts. Was like, that yes. what the line was? That was the line. <laughs> Her breasts were very nice breasts. It's, her it's, breasts it's, were very nice breasts. Yeah. Now I think there is a comma and a clause in there. I think it's like her breasts, which her breasts <laughs> I were very nice breasts. Yeah, that's what the corsetry will do to you, right? Yeah. Um, but of yeah, course uh, it does. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. Oh, I remember in that scene, um, and then Nelly faints and dies. I remember it being like, oh, everyone's yeah, dying man. in this. But <laughs> I, I, there, I, I found that to be the the scene where I really kind of welled up and yeah. thought, like, this is all the goodness is going. It's yeah. just becoming yeah. like the Southern yeah. Gothic, like deep tragedy. And I gotta say, I love how the staging of all of the dead bodies just look like her mum earlier on. It's just yeah. like, it's yeah. just like, you got to a point where you're looking forward to someone dying because they just, like the scenes just look so epic and shadowy <laughs> that, and dark. And... That whole scene where Mammy is explaining what happens to Melly, like, I mean, it is, it's very emotional because like Mammy herself is so upset. Yeah. And she's saying all these terrible things that happen. And then she says, the part that always gets me is when she says like, oh, like the Undertakers came to take Bonnie's body oh, that was and a, he yeah. he won't let them take her because he says I'm not putting my child in the dark because she's, she's so scared of, of it like that oh, just yeah. ruins me from the scene Every, before where she's crying yeah, in the dark Every London, time. which is terrible because it's not the south I love that one shot of Big Ben I'm and pretty sure that's like, not people. what it means sorry like, sorry Darren we're, we're, we're having an emotional moment stay out robot but then like no because Mammy comes in with yeah don't be in London Sorry. Yeah, because Mammy said something like, you know, it makes my blood run cold the way they talk to each other. And yeah, just like, and you just can imagine yeah. what that was. I find that... Like, like her hammering at the door and Rhett being like, I will literally shoot you through this door if you don't go away. Like, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, it, it was that, yeah. that little detail of just he, that, uh, like, that being staged, like if the Undertakers were coming to take her away and, and he was actually emoting over the, the coffin would have been far too much. Yeah. But even the telling of it was... Because you can imagine it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And in this giant house, which looks like a mausoleum, like with the stained glass mm-hmm. windows and everything else, like it's just... I mean, like the stairs were that long that you got all of that information on that one ascension. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> I love like the stairs where the real centerpiece are gone with the wind. They're, so they're impressive enough that you can stage any melodramatic event against them. They're long enough that you can offer any exposition that you need to as you're walking. <laughs> and it looks down. great to watch. And it looks great as well. And it provides access to the front door and you can look out over the plantation. And the place well. where you keep your 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 dead relatives. Yeah. Right um, at the top. The, the you know, the staircase is the heart of any southern home. I think if we can take anything from Gone with the Wind, um, it's that the staircase. Yeah, not the closing line, but the most famous line in the last act of the film is, "Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn." Um, fun fact about that: there's an urban legend, which is not true, but uh, is widely circulated, and we're going to continue circulating oh, yes. it. Is that apparently Selznick was so convinced, convinced, and committed to the line that he paid the fine for the Hayes Code uh, mm. to have it, the five thousand dollars. That's not what happened, but that's a popular rumor. Of course, you do that. It's, 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 a, it's a PR thing of like, there's apparently a scandalous word at the end of this film. Yeah. No, not that word. Not that word. <laughs> not that word. I wanted that one. <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't let me have I that have to one. To substitute this one in. Well, they did. They uh, calls a fire. Yeah. <laughs> 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 to pay a, well, that's a, what happens when you fine. spend far too much time in a, in a whorehouse, basically. I think Finley. you end up with big balls of fire. <laughs> yeah. But um, the. the they actually shot two versions of this. Um, they oh, shot a version right. where he uses the swear word and a version where he says, I think it's, I'll be fine. Uh, frankly, my dear, I'll be fine. And they played Which both. Which makes no sense in the context <laughs> of what she's just said. Because yeah. she says, where shall I go? What shall I do if you leave me? And he's like, I don't care. I'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Yeah, that's nothing to me. do with what she just said. <laughs> <laughs> but um, apparently the... The test audience reaction to I don't give a damn was amazing. <gasps> Apparently, the, yeah, that's a scandalous, but like cheering and roaring and clapping. Apparently, and he sets it up as well. Yeah. Like the, even the, mm. the, the, the line before that, where, where, where she's saying, um, I love you, Brett. And he says, that's your misfortune. That's your misfortune. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but like apparently even when they're hosting they held a couple of surprise test screens for audiences and it would say like, and it's great, I kind of love this, that it's like there are double features so those double features would be four hours long, two two-hour yeah. films. But they didn't substitute the first film. They substituted the second film. So what they do is they'd show the first film with the double feature. Then Selznitz would come out and say to the audience, um, we're going to show a surprise test film. We're not going to tell you what it is. When we start screening it, we're going to lock the doors. There's going to be security guards. If you leave... Oh, this, this, is, this is health and safety. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. Go, yeah, it's going to be a long film. Go to the bathroom now. What he did, he announced that they extended the intermission uh, between the two films so that people could, A go to the bathroom and B also call their babysitters or people at home to let them know that they need to stay an additional two hours. Um, But also apparently when one of Selnitz is like his career in movies, one of the best moments in his entire career, according to him was the moment when gone with the wind, the title card appeared on screen at those surprise screenings because the entire crowd came to life. with it. Yeah. Um, Well, the very dramatic way it just sort of, Rolls across the screen too with the music and everything. Like the wind. It blows, basically. And even the wind has a lone effect on it. Um, but the then it goes <laughs> much like the wind itself. Yeah. <laughs> a civilization gone with the wind. But the, um, the actually, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn line. What happened is, and this is kind of amazing, the film took so long to produce that by the time the film was about to be ready to be released, the Hayes Code had actually revised. Uh, yeah. Uh, their policy so you were allowed to use certain terms 
And apparently there was debate about whether those certain terms included the N-word. But you were allowed to use certain terms if they were taken from a source, a literary source material, mm-hmm. where they would be expected. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that gave him the opportunity to basically insert the swear word, which is fascinating. And I love that it's because the film took so long to produce. If he'd been able to produce it when he wanted to, he never would have been able to do that. And it wouldn't have been a classic. Arguably, yeah. that it, it is that last note of the film that does... Not the, the, the ultimate last note, yeah. but that note is what makes it classic because, of course, having not seen it my entire life, I'd seen that bit countless times. And that had been the bit that... Gets parody and reference. To the point where you don't actually register its meaning in context to the scene or the whole film you've just watched. You just kind of are expecting it and it's a it's a gimmick onto itself at the end. Was it the Simpsons sort of like the Simpsons happy ending of Gone with the Wind isn't like tomorrow's another day or the last the actual last line. It's frankly, my dear, I love you. Let's get remarried. Um, (laughs) But um, because like for pop culture, that is when you think of the ending of Gone with the Wind, you don't think of the actual last line. No. You think of that line as being you think the point of with jilted him. wife, yeah. and <laughs> it being a kind of a you know melodramatic uh, up uh, happy ending because this very selfish woman got what was coming to her. Yeah. Whereas in context, I would argue that's a very very sad line because it's like Red has been completely wrung out to the point where really he yeah. can't yeah. give anything anymore. Which like for the entire film, he's been such a powerhouse of a character, and he's just like. I got nothing. Post-traumatic stress. After having kind of survived the Civil War, this is the... But literally, like, at that stage, she'll gone probably 10 or 12 years of knowing her and going through all of that. Mm -hmm. And then he's just like, I have nothing else to give you. No, I'm done. Tapped out. See you later. Like the South. Done. Done. And then he literally, like, walks off into the mist and disappears. If it had been made a couple of years earlier, could he have said, darn... Frankly, my dear, I don't give a darn. Darn. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we co- we're going to replace all the swear words in this episode with darn. Um, <laughs> because this podcast still adheres to the Hayes Code. And then you would have just cut to the, the old women sort of knitting in the corner going, yes, what? Um, I do love that sequence of like when they're... Pre- <laughs> well, I don't want to say in front of the ladies. Yeah. I'm in a whorehouse with whores. Now you've done it. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that sequence, if only because of the kind of the, let's, what people did for fun in the old times, let's knit and sit around and read Charles Dickens. Um, <laughs> right. I love the kind of the slow lapse, sort of like dissolve kind of film montage filmmaking. Well, that's I mean, like get drunk with prostitutes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, at that point, they don't know that that's where they are. They think yeah. that the Yankees are off murdering them. Which yeah. they are. <laughs> yeah, they, they only <laughs> actually did get shot. And Frank actually got killed. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Although it's never made clear if that was a Yankee or one of the men in the shanty town that they went to ruffle. They were, yeah, yeah, and again in in the no, in the novel, it was the KKK. Um, they were members of the KKK. To be absolutely, you could clear. read that yeah. scene as them sort of having a, a sort of a forerunner of the KKK, though, in terms of them going to root this poor place, to yeah. rid it of undesirables. You know, clean it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we've got to clean out the woods. What a euphemism! <laughs> y- Yankees are like, oh, you can't, you can't make your own. Um, you can't stop. keep you- taking the law into your own hands. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, is there anything else you want to discuss about Gone with the Wind? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at people? if those ladies had gotten up and all of the things that they, all of the cloth that they, they were just yeah, making. Yeah, turned out to be. These two clucks gone. It was a Django sorry. Unchained where they're yeah. like cutting eye holes. We appreciate Frank's wife's work on this. Um, and so. they're knitting with that, that um, 
three pronged code thing with the fingers. You know the oh yeah the, the Mississippi burning detail of the you know, when the uh, okay uh, I I don't actually know this the way people were uh, uh, this is where I learned from Mississippi burning that oh, okay. uh, Gene Hackman was able to tell Brad Dorf was in the Ku Klux Klan because of the three I'm holding up three three fingers, fingers. Uh, of how he placed it in his belt buckle so maybe that's how the ladies okay. were knitting, knitting and as a subtle communication a subtle between communication, the two like actually you know just read the subtext yeah. All right. Dead they were though. No, I, I, I don't imagine that one slipped no. through. The, I think that even in even the thirties, Selnitz was like, "Yeah, let's tone down let's the KKK so, just a little bit, please." Yeah. Um, all right then. So, is there anything else that jumps out at people? Any scenes, characters, anything we haven't discussed already that you think merits discussion? Whether um, I don't know, uh, Rhett or Ashley, who do you think is is worthy of of Scarlet's affection? Nobody. That's a good I answer. Think I mean. I would I would make an argument for Rhett, but I would make a stronger argument for Scarlett just not to have to be married to anyone. That was kind of my takeaway. That entirely self-sufficient. The best. Yeah. yeah, like Melly is the, the real love the of her life. There, if you look at well, it, exactly. Yeah, like the the I feel like um, ideally the kind the kind of marriage that they could have had could have been a good. Um, a conduit or medium for uh, Rhett expressing his kind of admiration and affection for her kind of yeah. every day. Like a marriage in the old fashioned sense life. where it's like a contract, yeah. I think, a to give them both a certain level of social respectability, what individual autonomy, I think, would have worked. The problem is that I'm not sure Rhett would have been entirely satisfied with yeah. that and i think that's like that's rhett's problem throughout this movie is he's that, not meant to be married yeah yeah but not also like i time. think yeah. he really respects scarlet but he also loves her and i don't think he can separate the two whereas mm. the I worst feel like, sides of his personality always came out when he was married yeah yeah and mm-hmm. felt trapped by her and having been tied to her all the the the, the flaws of scarlet were affecting yeah. him and making him a weaker man so i think on on the one on the one hand, yes, they they shouldn't perhaps get to get married, but you also want them to have the ride, and I I don't think that's going <laughs> to happen. If, if, but, if, but that's just if, the issue. Like if if they could have had a casual arrangement, yeah. an open marriage yeah. that suited them both, then that would have been perfect. But the problem is that Rhett caught feelings. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and so, and kids outside of wedlock as well, like that. that yeah. yeah. But that's that's literally like in the book. That's why Scarlett doesn't want to be his mistress, even though he's just like, yeah. Do you want to be my mistress, mistress sort of thing? And it, that's the only thing that puts her off. Otherwise, she probably would have been perfectly happy with that arrangement. Mm. But like for the standards of the time, for them to be married and for her was to... more respectable, you know. And then whatever they did within those confines, they could have worked out themselves. But I just think Rhett was too invested in her, and he wouldn't have been able to separate that out. And she was too invested in that social climbing to to avail to that. There wasn't that level of modernity to their relationship. Yeah. 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 I think that... I mean, it's also the fact that she kept Ashley's picture in her drawer and stuff like that. Like, I mean, that's also a bit of a factor. But I mean, like, I find that fascinating from a psychological thing is that Ashley is an unattainable ideal for her. So she can pretend, for all intents and purposes, to indulge an emotional side of herself that doesn't actually exist because she's been made to feel like she should. I think that's why I, I I did empathize despite myself because there's there's always been people that you, uh, you know that you admire that you think you love that you're infatuated with that become a more of a reason for yourself to to access that side of yourself and that romance. 
But yeah. the reality of that person is that they're a drip. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> or being with that person mightn't be. Or wouldn't big. work out. Never. Yeah. It's just yeah. never yeah. the ideal yeah. works out. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's with a fantasy. By definition, they're always somebody unattainable because then you never have to deal with the reality yeah. Yeah. of being with them. Yeah. Like, And the fact that you'd have real problems and you mightn't fit and so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah. I think that's why. Like, I don't think she actually likes Ashley. He's just... That's why the penny dropped so fast for a few yeah, years yeah. of being in, in As love soon as him. he becomes available, she's like, yeah. no. Yeah. No, <laughs> actually, you're kind of... Yeah. This is no. all wrong. This is yeah, not how this I picture work. it at all. But what I love so you're much... You're really British how, and you don't want to be in this movie. <laughs> in that point, she says to him something like, why didn't... Like, you should have made it clear years ago that you yeah, didn't love me. And I'm like, I think he sort of tried... But you weren't hearing. That's true. Yeah, he said, he, he said as well. Yeah, he he was like, "Don't let, don't make me say something that will, um, yeah. uh, uh, break your heart or like." But even early on, like when he says feelings. that he's marrying Melly, and Scarlett's just like, "Why?" And he's like, "Oh, you know, we're we're like each other. Like we fit. We right. and, and they do. And their marriage yeah. actually reasonably works comparatively much better than the yeah. one between oh, yeah, Rachel and, uh, and Scarlett. But I mean, even even then, you have this sort of like you know, back and forth between the two where Ashley is clearly attracted to her and drawn to her and, and like her, several yeah. points at which they are on the verge of or about to make out. It's um, difficult not to be. Yeah. The whole yeah. kind of world is drawn in by like this is before the kind of revulsion has kind of started to, to set in. Like she she she's already kind of people still talk about her kind of unfavorably they they gossip with the exception of melanie yeah. who 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 defends her kind of mm-hmm. throughout um but yeah she she like of, of course ashley is 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 taken with her everybody mm-hmm. is taken with, with, with Scarlett. you know what the funny part is is that like the book says that she's not beautiful but she just is so charming mm-hmm. and so good with people that she seems much more physically attractive than she is which is why it's funny to think of Vivian Lee being put in that role. Yeah. You know, it's mm. like the Game of Thrones things again, where you're like, Jorah Mormont was not handsome. And then Ian Glenn walks on screen. And it's like, did you even try? <laughs> did you even try to cast somebody unattractive or Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm? Because Ian Malcolm's meant to be like fat and bald and ugly in the book. And then, and then Jeff Goldblum appears and you're like, again, don't think you're picking up what they were putting down here. Um, all right. <laughs> I have a lot of time James for... Gandalf, Amy. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, after that description that you gave, um, I don't think, yeah. The, James the, Gandalf, Amy, if, he, <laughs> if he was around, he probably mightn't be that happy yeah, well, um, yeah. to hear uh, the, that, kind the, of that want, description. Now I kind of want being... Jurassic Park with James Gandolfini. Yeah, and Ian yeah, yeah. Malcolm just explain. finds a way. Yeah. 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 It's much more threatening. Yeah. When, yeah. When, uh, well, all of the really icky parts of Malcolm's personality would suddenly be a lot more icky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is, it is uh, just in terms of that, I actually quite like Rhett's description of Ashley, where he's talking about a man who is unfaithful in his yeah, heart. Like, he cannot be emotionally faithful to yeah. his wife and won't be physical, and won't be unfaithful to her technically. Yeah, yeah that's technically. What he says. Um, which is just, and again, that's a really good, precise, kind of a really good way of cutting to the quick, yeah. as it were, with Ashley's problem. Because again, I'm calling his bull, which is, he's kind of, he is kind of keeping Scarlet on a string. Yeah. And letting her sit there knowing she's, because she's very uh, frank and straight with her feelings for him, he never has the clarity that she needs to go, I'm in love with, I'm, you know, I'm not in love with you. 
and release her from these years, even yeah. though if he was in any way perceptive, would know that it's causing her and Rhett a great deal of distress. And, and you know, causing tension for him as well. Yeah. You know I mean, to... I like, assume that it's probably partially because he probably likes the attention in some level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I, know, I don't know. It's not. Nice. Nice. I think he just lacks the courage to actually exactly. do no, it. Yeah. It's spineless. I think yeah. it's both yeah. because it is nice to have that. Like, like I, I can't imagine Ashley wants to lose the affection yeah, of uh, Scarlett. But I think as well, Ashley probably... Like, he probably looks up to Scarlet in a certain way and kind of wishes that he were more like her. Like, mm. stronger and more able to deal with people and more able to deal with his situation. And I think that, like, having her around does feed him in a certain sense. Yeah. Like, I don't... It isn't just about him not, like, having the backbone to say this isn't working. Like, having her around is, like, a weird support system yeah. for him. Yeah, She is Especially with the hierarchy he grew up in is completely disintegrating. He does want to be in her orbit. Yeah. yeah. And if she were his cousin... <laughs> we could make this work. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. like, even... Because, like, there is, like I said earlier, that one point where he says, well, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go up to New York and get a job there and, like, actually provide for my family. And she won't let him leave. And he just gives up. Like, that's the one point... Both of where, you are allied against me. Yeah, like, that's the one point where he was like, no, I'm nipping this in the bud. I'm going. And she, she just won't let him go. And he, like, just capitulates and never tries again. And we've been very focused on the idea of Ashley's happiness and Scarlett's happiness. Rhett's happiness. I have mm-hmm. a pitch here, and I, I, you know, it's it's obviously going to be very loaded, and I can't imagine it working. But here's a pitch. It's wrong. Rhett, what? It's wrong. But Rhett, sorry, I listened to it first. Rhett and Mammy taking advantage of Mammy's liberation following the Civil War go on adventures together and like solve crime or smuggle or bootleg and just you know enjoy life together in a platonic life partner sort of way. I, I don't actually... think Mammy would no. do such in her mind immoral things. No, yeah. Then, then you have the interesting tension between the two. It ain't, ain't fitting, Darren. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't fitting. Yeah, you have the tension between the two. It ain't fitting, Darren. She wears the petticoat, which suggests Darren. she's somewhat open to I'm, like. It ain't fitting. Yeah, she does, and it riffles like it took her years to do it, and so you have the push and pull between them, where Rhett desperately wants like Mammy's approval and recognition mm-hmm. and acknowledgement that he's a good person, and Mammy, who has this very fixed set of what's right and proper, that has been institutionally sort of like you know baked in, you know, sort of like from childhood has been instilled in her, and she's internalized. But being with Rhett sort of like gets this little sort of like flirty dynamic this little sort of like maybe it's a society that you're raised in wasn't perfect maybe it's okay to be a little rebellious maybe it's okay to wear a sexy red sort of like petticoat under the dress yeah they're gonna get down to New Orleans go down to the bayou they're gonna open up some bootlegging yeah. uh whorehouse that's um... yeah. I mean if you if you want a framing device for this partnership what you do is you say that well like you know Scarlet's having difficulty with the lumber mill they need to get some money together mm. and it's like Rhett's gonna go to New Orleans but it's like well we can't trust Rhett on his own so we send Mammy she'll keep him in line and then you have this kind of weird partnership oh, tell Mammy me. there's regular Mammy <laughs> <laughs> The, um, Tell or, me you don't, you're not like enticed by that Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's I'm good. not it, enticed at all because that makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't I mean, make no, any not, sense, not but like it, it, Darren and isn't going to give up on this. Oh, until the notion we... of Scarlet having problems with the lumber mill and not solving them herself Fair is point. alien to me. Fair, yeah. Right. Fair yeah. point. Yeah. You need a dramatic. You need a dramatic. You're a straight fool, Darren. Twisted and Scarlet sees an opportunity through that arrangement yes. to launder in more money through the mill and therefore makes yeah. it enhances her future, particularly by the time the next generation is around and they're going to absolutely use it for 
prohibition's sake yeah. and uh, it's a whole legacy could have been born in that in yeah, that is, mostly this is just my way of saying i but really Scarlett like that scene between rhett and mammy is there, i just really like the scene yeah. with rhett and mammy when the baby's born is there a scene um, where rhett comes in and apologizes to uh, Mammy, who's sitting in bed, uh, feeling really kind of um, happy about herself. Okay, we need to wrap up. We, we do need to wrap up, because after all, Darren, uh, tomorrow is another, another day. day. Um, all right. Uh... All right. I think we're going to wrap up there on that note. Uh, but before we do, what we normally do is we ask guests to recommend something kind of for listeners. Maybe whether it's in this vein or it can even be just something that you're enjoying lately and think, des- think deserves more attention or even just might just bring a little happiness or joy into the audience's kind of heart. So we're going to give you guys a little moment to kind of think about that. Andrew, do you have something that you would like to recommend for listeners? Um, yes. I, I would recommend um, Southern Food. Iced tea, Savannah. The Georgia. artist or the uh, um sorry, the I, uh, not the artist. Funnily <laughs> enough, Darren, no, no, um, not 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 um, um, SVU's um, iced tea, um, uh, no. I love how no. Sean, yeah, that that John uh, Mulaney bit where he's like <laughs> iced tea being surprised by absolutely every sexual fetish of some description. Uh, what, like they're addicted to it? Um, <laughs> like, like, like with alcohol or ponies? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, the, the the all the all the all the great stuff about um about the south or that part of the south because yeah. the south is quite a, a, a large area. A large area, yeah, yeah. Um, if you're going to go further south, like to Florida, avoid most of Florida. <laughs> go, go to Saint Augustine, maybe. Um, I'm not mad about those tropical storms they have. It's crazy. It's like tw- um, sunshine, sunshine, sunshine. 20 minutes of the most torrential rain you've ever experienced. It's interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if I would be okay with that every day. So a very qualified recommendation of the yeah. South. You're a person who's been to Disney World, right? I have indeed. And all the theme parks. And and, and, Florida is a very strange And you place. like that, right? I quite enjoy yeah. Florida, but it's a very strange place. I recommend all those pain clinics. <laughs> <laughs> you get uh, addicted to opioids. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but sorry, um, all the good things in the South, yeah. Really? <laughs> Do you have anything that you would recommend for listeners? Um, I went to see The Farewell the other day. I really liked the it. The Aquafina movie? Yes. It was really, really special. And um, I, w- I went to see it as a double bill with the souvenir as well. Sort of like A24's semi-autobiographical shot with a lot of negative space to portray the lack of emotion between two characters. Kind of double bill. Yeah. Um, but I did not like the souvenir. I thought I would really love it. Uh, I really... Really, really, really liked the farewell. Um, you had to wait till the farewell to just get a movie you enjoyed. Till that, yeah. I know. Till the film. It was just a, a film about um, uh, a very awkward expression of emotions in a culture that doesn't express emotions. Mm. And it was deeply emotional. And it just was shot perfectly. It was a small domestic melodrama that felt really cinematic in the way it was shot, that just didn't overkill a lot of moments, didn't milk a lot of moments, and it was just really, really perfectly funny. I really loved oh, it. Oh, I've heard about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the... the one um, where the grandmother's dying. But yes, yeah, it's a Chinese-American, or is part of it set in China as well? It's She goes back yeah. to China 
Yes. Um, the last time she was there, I think, was maybe when she was three and she meets all the family she didn't really meet before. But also her beloved granny, who she loves and talks to almost every day, uh, is not knowing and is not aware of how bad her cancer is because mm. it's a traditional lie told by a lot of families that choose not to tell the dying yes. parent of a family when the doctor tells the family yeah. that you don't feed that back and yeah. the doctors are complicit in that lie as well and it's just a, but it's really about reconciling a generational approach to emotion of who absorbs the emotional pain of death in the family who has the duty to do that and um how selfish are we to want to express our emotions or to free ourselves from the burden of not telling uh, someone that they're dying and it was just a really interesting small little film about that um and it didn't say whether it was right or wrong it just kind of let it play out in a really beautiful mm. way um we loved it there, there's a very good interview with the maker of the movie um it's uh, uh elvis mitchell who uh, presents the treatment? Treatment mm. is really good for kind of. Have, have, have you? Don't, no, no. I'd, 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 I'd um, recommend you listen to it because he really gets kind of in depth on 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 everything that the movie kind of means and all of the kind of hidden subtleties uh, of I love it. That yeah. Stuff. yeah. Um, but yeah, check that out. Also, um, Succession. I think I may have said that last time, but Succession or next still. Time. Or next time, next time. Um, but it still remains to be one of the best TV shows I've seen in ages. Succession's amazing. It will have wrapped up its second season at this point as well. Yes, yes, yes. Perfect worth catching up on. Eight episodes in the first season, nine in the second. So very bingeable. Uh, and Grace, anything you'd recommend for listeners? Um, nothing you probably haven't already seen. But if you have not heard the harmonica cover of the Jurassic Park theme, you should go. It's <laughs> <laughs> the melodica. The... Yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah. it is epic. It is truly. You'll never um, be able to watch that scene in the same way again. No, I, 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 I just actually every time I'm watching Jurassic Park, I always have to do substitution. <laughs> 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 and you call me by your name is on Netflix now, so it is. you know. Very worth seeing. Yeah. Another really romance mean. about people kind of struggling to, to articulate and maybe can't be together in very vivid, dreamlike memory fragments yeah. that exist very well in the memory of the film as opposed yeah. to the film itself. The souvenir was in the same way is 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 good like that, but I still can't get over. They're just very rich, well-to-do people. Yeah. I just can't okay. get over that, and they're very posh, and they shop in Harrods, and she's twenty-five and has a two-bedroom flat so, in Knightsbridge. Yeah, so not, not really currying sympathy. So what you're saying is the real genius of Gone with the Wind is the bit in the middle where they lose absolutely everything, and it becomes that was my favorite more... bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's <laughs> taking characters radish. Yeah. Yeah. I used to work in Harrods, so I have a particular dislike of people who shop there. <laughs> All right, we're putting we're not recommending Harrods at the end of the podcast. Um, I would recommend just very briefly also on Netflix, uh, Underground, uh, which is a TV show, only ran two seasons. Something of a kind of a counterpoint to Gone with the Wind. It's a TV show about slaves in the Deep South, uh, but it's also a heist. It's basically a heist TV show about slaves stealing themselves to freedom. Uh, it is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. It's surprisingly watchable for a movie dealing, sorry, TV show that deals with kind of heavy subject matter, as you might imagine it does. Yeah. Uh, but it also does it in a way that is just incredibly visceral and very effective to watch and very dramatically compelling. Um, and it does it in a way kind of foregrounds the, obviously the slave characters, but you have a lot of the dynamic between them and the masters as well. I found it absolutely amazing. It only ran two seasons on WGA, so it's, it's very bingeable as well. I recommend that. Um, if people are looking for a bit more Rena, a bit more grace in their lives, where they can find, where can they find you guys? <coughs> in in on the social media. Well, 
Anyway. On the Twitter, yeah, on the Twitter, all the time there. <laughs> but even your film, actually, yeah, because yeah. oh, yeah. your film will be doing uh, the circuit at the moment. I believe it's it's, it's yes, playing yes, yes. at London. It will have played at London by the time people are hearing this. Actually, uh, not our short movie. Uh, this is a, a Samson. I work for a company called Samson oh, Films, sorry. so our uh, one of the films on our slate is premiering there on Thursday. Nice. The this this Thursday coming, which will be October third um called rose place julie and that should be on release next year um i was development exec on it with joel Lawler, christine malloy who did helen and uh, mr john and i'm very proud of this movie i think they've done a really great job of dealing with the meditation on identity uh via very visual movie st- um filmmaking and uh tackles a very 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 dark subject matter about being uh, the offspring of sexual assault, um, which is, uh, you know, light viewing, but I think they handled it in a really, really um, vivid way without um, without judgment or condemnation, but just great characterization. And, and very worth seeking out. And that'll be available yeah. early next year, hopefully. Hopefully. I think it'll do a, um, a, a festival run and then and it should get a release. Perfect. So and listeners, keep an, keep an eye out for that mm-hmm. one. And Grace, is there anything to work with find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Pixie Grace. Perfect. Andrew, can <coughs> we find you is the question. Um, Where is he now? Ask right now. A-P-R-I-C-O-T-N-U-T-L-O-A-R. Yeah. Um, and that's at Apricot Nut Loaf um, on Twitter. So, and, and, and try, try, check out the... Um, the recipe the, that may or may not be in our show notes. It will be in our show notes. <laughs> Uh, perfect. You can follow the podcast at, at the two fifty. We're available online, online, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever good podcasts and sometimes not so good podcasts are available. Uh, we have an interesting lineup planned. We're in December. We now. won't say which type we are. Uh, yeah, we're going to leave it open for the listeners to decide. Um, but we do have an interesting lineup as Christmas is coming up. Actually, we're very, very lucky. Both Grace and Rena will be joining us. Uh, in the coming weeks. Next week, with a bit of luck, we'll have Grace and Luke Dunn from Film in Dublin on to discuss Star Wars, um, The Empire Strikes Back, our annual sort of pre-Christmas Star Wars special, which will be sort of roughly coinciding with the release of The Rise of Skywalker. And if that comes in, we'll be covering that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure the internet will be a perfectly sane and rational place. the world in general. Yeah. Uh, when that happens I'm sure Apricot and Love will have something to say about it <laughs> maybe everyone will have already killed each other over the Joker thing so there'll be no one left to talk about Star Wars uh, yeah we're assuming if you listen this far on the podcast you have survived our Joker episode you survived the great Joker wars of 2019 <laughs> um, and then after that the following week to mark Christmas we have Renokin who's going to be joining us to discuss the apartment Yes, uh, so they have, they have not 96. talked about that yet at all. Uh, <laughs> you're looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to it. Uh, take it easy. We'll be back next week. Bye. 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 Thanks very much. Perfect. Thank guys. you guys. Thank you so much. <laughs>
Under the terms of the list, there are only a very select set of circumstances in which a Martin Scorsese movie and a Robert De Niro movie wouldn't make the list. So, uh, yeah. Is it a documentary about a kind of a musician like, I don't know, Bob Dylan or the Rolling Stones? No. And uh, is it a spiritual, psychological drama about Jesuits in 17th century Japan? No. All right, then. And uh, just one more question, Bobby, strictly pro forma. Have you made any remarks in the recent past that could be characterized as political in nature? You know, maybe something about President Donald Trump. On a job? Yeah. He is a, he's a fake president. It's no longer down with Trump. It's... I don't think so. All right, then. I guess we'll be talking about the Irishman in a couple of weeks. Actually, you know, Bobby, we're, we're doing a season of, of Scorsese films next year, and I, uh, I wanted to call it Score Scorsese for 2020. Right. But it, it seems like uh, some people have been complaining about it now. It doesn't, doesn't matter who they are. Not a big deal. We're, we're going to do it anyway. You, you know that, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, so it, it really doesn't make a difference who it was who, who complained about that. What do you want to know? You want to know if I did it or not? No, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference to me. Who it was, who said that? It's, it's grand. It's not a big deal. <laughs> all right, then. Yeah, all right, but...